Hello, this is Lee Carter with another episode of Christian Constitution, the most shocking podcast on the internet where I talk about the things your pastor is afraid to. Uh, One of the things you're going to grasp over listening to many of my podcasts is that Christianity, in my opinion, in America is dead. The overwhelming majority of pastors in this country are frauds, they're businessmen, Uh, They can't afford to run off good-paying customers, so they have to water it down. Uh, The reality is that American culture is so secular that pastors know they cannot get into Scripture properly uh, for fear of running people off. Uh, But not here. This is a free podcast. I don't make any money. It's not monetized. I have no intention of making money. I'm just going to simply share with uh, listeners things that are near and dear to my heart and I think are important for fellow Christians to know. Now, as I've said, I think American Christianity is dead. Uh, I think that that I can give you many examples of this, and I'm, you know, it's kind of my goal is to give you examples of how American Christianity is dead. Now, I'm going to share a story today that is probably the most shocking story I could possibly tell on uh, a podcast. I can tell you a whole bunch of short stories that I hope to get to down the road, but as of now, what I'm going to talk about today you won't believe what happened. You won't believe how some people can act, what some people are teaching. Literally, you're, the overwhelming majority of people are going to hear this going to say, no way, that's not possible. These people aren't saying stuff like that. Uh, although I'm going to document all this and uh, show you that indeed this is the case. Now, what I'm referring to is I got involved in a church, small church denomination, uh, that denomination is, uh, I think, still in existence, but it's it's darn near defunct because it's a micro-denomination, and uh, micro-denominations tend to infight and bicker and uh, fall apart, and they've been divided, uh, and they're, I don't know that they'll divide again. They're just so small that they're almost insignificant, uh, virtually totally insignificant. But anyway, when I got involved in this particular denomination, we wanted to, so a friend of, of mine, now I'm going to, from this point forward, I'm going to call him friend, because as it turned out, he he ended up not being a friend at all, uh, as you'll see as I tell the story. But that's this friend and mine uh, of mine and I wanted to start a, a church uh, in the area where we lived because we learned of the denomination and learned of its teachings and was very uh, enthusiastic and excited about what they teach. You know, we had gotten disfranchised with so many other denominations, large denominations. They water everything down. They're scared of running people off. Uh, this this particular denomination was not afraid to tell truth. Uh, some hard stuff, difficult stuff, detailed stuff out of the Bible that most churches and pastors won't touch. Well, anyway, so we spent about six years in this church, and one thing that uh, that stuck out to me is the people involved in this particular denomination seemed to me to all be in love or have a love affair with everything Southern. And what I mean by that is, is that they loved the Confederacy, they loved the, the history of the Civil War, and their view was that the South could do no wrong. The North was demonic uh, or 
tyrannical. Abraham Lincoln was tyrannical. The South could do no wrong. The South was right to secede from the Union. But it goes further. A lot of these people in this denomination seem to be defending not only everything Southern, but defending slavery. And, uh, you know, over the years of being involved in this, I I knew my history fairly well. I had read, uh, I had already read about six uh, different biographies of Abraham Lincoln. I read a biography of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee uh, and sundry other re- writings on the Civil War. So I was very familiar with the Civil War, very familiar with what happened and who did what and why. And I was over the years trying to persuade people in this church and in this denomination that they've got their history wrong. And these people are very adamant and very defensive for everything Southern. So occasionally discussions would get a little contentious. I mean, you know, you're talking about something is going to get contentious if they believe something that one, you can demonstrate it's not true. They don't, you know, pride is going to be one of those things. People just don't want to admit they're wrong about something. And secondly, if they've made an idol of something, which I contend that, you know, after all this was said and done, I'm convinced these people have made an idol of everything Southern and the Confederacy and so forth, it would get contentious uh, because, you know, they just, you just don't dare criticize their idol. Well, to give you an example, there was one guy in the church uh, that said to me that God blessed the Southern people with slaves, or, or I should put it this way. Slaves were God's blessing on the Christian people of the South. And of course, when I heard that, I, I got I got rather ugly because that's the most disgusting thing I think I've ever heard, that uh, God would uh, completely subjugate innocent people, uh, such as African people in, uh, you know, that were rounded up from tribes in Africa and, and forced into slavery and sold to Europeans, that this is somehow a blessing. Uh, my contention has always been it's sin, the way it was started with sin, the way it was practiced with sin. There's, there's nothing about this that you can defend. So to hear this guy say this is just mind boggling. So I got a little angry and, and a little contentious with him on it, but I walked away. But anyway, I'm just trying to paint a picture of what these people think that Southern chattel slavery was biblical. Now, we had been involved. I had been involved in in organizing, starting this church for several years. And one thing I do like about the denominations they're not they're not afraid to talk about politics. They re, they recognize the reality is that government is covenantal. That government is under God, the same as the church is under God. That Christ is the head of the church, same as uh, Christ is the head of uh, uh, civil government. And that both must obey Christ's word. Now, I love that. I like. I love the fact that there was a denomination that's not afraid of politics. Uh, I would love to talk, and I, and I plan on talking about that in more detail in another podcast. But so what they decided to do was they were going to have a conference on the role of civil government according to the Bible. And of course, I was real excited about this coming together. We we're going to have lots of people come to this two or three day talk on the role of civil government and the denomination invited a pastor or our church invited a pastor out of the denomination from a church in Tennessee to come to Virginia and uh, to speak and to teach this. Uh, I never met the guy. 
Uh, I'm going to call this man, you know, I'm not going to name names in this, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you a title that I have come up with him. I'm going to call him Dumb Dumb because he's, he's really dumb. Uh, he thinks he's really intelligent, and in fact, he's really quite stupid. Uh, as you will see, I'm not, I'm not just calling names to, to call names. Uh, he is a dummy. So from this point forward, I will call him Dummy. I'm not going to name his name. But I didn't know this. He came to speak, and um, the first night he spoke at the conference. And, of course, since he was in from out of town, I offered for him and his wife to stay at my home. But they didn't come to my home until after the first night's uh, convention was over. And uh, they showed up. It was rather late at night. My kids were already in bed. It was about 10 o'clock at night. And, of course, I took him and his wife down in the basement where we have a spare bedroom uh, to show him where they're staying. And was happy to have him and his wife. Seemed really nice and friendly. Uh, but his wife made a comment, says, you have a lovely home. Would you show us your home? Now, in the basement, the really, the there's a spare bedroom, bathroom, uh, a rec room, and then there's my office. So really the first place to take them to was my office. So I walked them into my office and my office is, uh, you know, decorated the way I like it. I have a picture on the wall of Stonewall Jackson, who was a, a devout Christian Presbyterian. Yes, he fought as a general for the, for the Confederacy in the South. But his story, his Christian story is a very powerful story of, he was a powerful witness to Christ. So, and I've read a biography of him and I have a picture of Stonewall Jackson. And of course he was commenting on that nice picture. And I said, well, I'm kind of an unusual Southerner. I also have here on this other wall, a picture of Abraham Lincoln. And of course on the wall is Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, they're kind of matching pictures. And this pastor said, well, that's good for nothing but throwing darts at. In other words, he doesn't like Abraham Lincoln. Now, of course, I'm used to this at, uh, by this time because I, I've heard this for many years out of people that go to this church. And, of course, you know, when he said that, it, it provoked a, a conversation about the Civil War. Uh, it, it provoked a conversation about secession and, and slavery. And, of course, he said to me, uh, you know, and it, it got a little heated because I don't agree with these guys on this on this stuff uh, the the Confederacy was begun or the southern states seceded over slavery there's lots of people that will claim that's not true but all you have to do is read the southern states that seceded their secession declarations they claim they're seceding over slavery now of course we're in Virginia and Virginia is a little bit different than say South Carolina and Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana and Florida and so forth uh, they they clearly stated they were seceding over slavery. Uh, people like to whitewash history and claim that we're not seceding over slavery. They didn't secede over slavery. They seceded over states' rights. Well, that's a true statement, but it was states' rights to own slaves. <laughs> so uh, they're one and the same. But anyway, so I'm used to this conversation. But one thing he said to me was, the Bible condemns abolitionism. So naturally, when he said that, I said to him, are you telling me that all black sh- all black people should still be slaves. Now, my wife is is in the off is in my office with me with his wife, so everybody's hearing the conversation. So I have my wife as a witness, and I was thinking to myself, if he answers this question in in the affirmative, I'm kicking his butt out the front door because I'm not going to listen to that nonsense. And I'm not really sure what he believes, but I just wasn't going to take a chance. I, at the moment, I didn't know what he believes, but I wasn't going to take a chance of him uh, answering in the, the affirmative. So I very quickly, rather than let him answer the question, changed the subject. And I made a joke. I said, well, uh, my pastor said that you would keep me up till three o'clock in the morning talking. 
and he and his wife laughed, and we moved on. Well, anyway, you know, I've been down this road multiple times with people in this in this denomination, but I have never heard anybody say that the Bible condemns abolitionism. So the next day, I called my friend and told him what was going on. I said, I've got a real problem here because this man is defending slavery. Now, my friend said, well, we probably should get together and talk this over and and hash this out, make sure that there's no misunderstandings and stuff like that. I said, absolutely, I, I think that's a good idea. Of course, this was on a Monday. I'm sorry, this was Tuesday morning that I called my friend and told him that about this. So we were having the uh, conference for another two two nights. The next night, the next evening, the, the conference, this was like on Tuesday evening, uh, I didn't go to the conference uh, because at that point I realized if this man starts teaching that stuff, which I had a suspicion he might, I just, I refrained from going. Uh, because I'm trying to prevent turmoil. I'd rather take the time to, to talk this over and hash it out, because if I went to the conference uh, and he starts talking about this, I'd get up and leave because I'm not listening to it. And so I knew that I would, I would march me and my family right out in the middle of it because I wasn't going to listen to it. So I just, knowing that I was like that, I just didn't go. And, of course, that evening he showed up at my house again to stay for the second night. And you could tell that he, he could tell that there was something wrong. And, of course, I'm sure the word spread from my friend to my pastor. Uh, I'm not going to mention my pastor's name. I'm going to call him Tyrant. Uh, the reason I'm going to call him Tyrant is because you'll see in a minute, you'll see as I tell the story that he is indeed a very much a tyrant. So my friend probably told my pastor, Tyrant, uh, what was going on. So they kind of knew that I was not happy. So, you know, of course, I I welcomed him back in the second night. I wasn't going to start anything while he's there at my house. We'll have a a meeting. I think we had agreed to have a meeting on Wednesday uh, during lunch, and I agreed to that. But between that time and the, the meeting, I decided, you know, I've been down this road several times. I decided that I was not going to get into a conversation with these people about whether or not it's biblical. I made up my mind that if they intend on teaching slavery as biblical, that I was just going to ask for a letter transfer and find another church. Now, that's the peaceful, peaceful way of handling it. You know, we can debate all day long although I don't really think it's a debate, but I know if, if people are of that mindset, you, uh, and I've been doing it for five years now, you can debate this forever. Nobody is going to give up and say, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong on this. They're just not going to do it. So when I went to the meeting on Wednesday during, during lunch, uh, we met in a coffee shop to talk about these things. I had made up my mind that I was going to tell them, if you think this is biblical and if you intend on teaching it from the pulpit, I'm leaving. I want a letter of transfer, and I'm finding another church. Now, the reason why I had come to that conclusion was is because my friend had told me that Pastor Dum Dum had a sermon on Sermon Audio talking about this subject, talking about slavery. So that evening, I think it was Tuesday evening, before Wednesday morning that we were going to have that meeting, I listened to the sermon. And you won't believe what this Dum Dum is saying in this sermon. It's not a sermon. It's nothing but a defense of Southern chattel slavery. That's all it is. The, a defense of the South, a defense of everything Southern. I mean, he goes so far to criticize some song. Well, that's a Northern song. I mean, this is how 
crazy they are about everything Southern. So anyway, and, and I'll, I'll get into that in more detail in a minute. So that's how I made up my mind. I'm going to this meeting on Wednesday during lunch, and I'm going to tell them, if you intend on publishing, publicly publishing sermons, defending slavery, defending the South, I don't want to be associated with it. I want a letter, a letter of transfer. And that's the very first thing I told them without equivocating. It's this simple. If you're going to teach it from the pulpit and publish it on sermon audio, I don't want to be associated with it. I want a letter of transfer. Now, I, I somewhat have a regret that I let them drag me into a conversation on it. So at that lunch meeting, they if they were peacemakers, they should have said to me, well, you know, Lee, we do believe this is biblical. We do believe that the, the Bible defends slavery. We do believe that, that abolitionism is condemned in the Bible. I'm sorry you don't believe that. We will grant you a letter of transfer because they don't think this is a good fit for you. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to have the contention. They accused me of contention, but they really wanted to have the contention themselves. They wanted to take me to task. So they dragged me into a discussion on what the Bible teaches. And, you know, I took a recording, uh, I took my cell phone with me and put it on record. Unfortunately, we were in a coffee shop, it was rather loud, and I, not having a lot of experience in doing a recording with my phone, I had it on my lap, uh, whereas it wasn't able to pick up the conversation. Now, the reason I do that is because whenever you have contentious uh, situations like this, it's always good to have a record uh, in case they say something that maybe I misconstrued or I say something they misconstrue or worst case scenario is somebody tells a lie and I've got a record of it. So that's the reason why I recorded. Unfortunately, the, the lunch date that we had a discussion, we really didn't solve anything in that lunch debate because, you know, we, we talked and talked and talked about this stuff and I was running out of time. I, I was, you know, I had to be working. So I told him I've, I've got to break this off. Uh, and cut this short. The gist of what happened there at that meeting was is that Pastor Dum Dum claimed that he was not talking about history or the South when he was in my home. And of course, I knew that wasn't true because I and I even had a witness. My wife was standing there listening to it. I mean, it started as a discussion of a picture of Stonewall Jackson and the history there, uh, Abraham Lincoln and the history there. We talked about we talked about history. And then he claimed at the lunch meeting, well, I was only talking about the Bible. And of course, when he did talk about the Bible, I cut him off because I wasn't going to let him answer what he said. He did mention one thing, but we were talking about history. So he was lying. Uh, and at the time, I really couldn't think, well, wait a minute, I've got a, I've got a witness. I just tried to keep it calm and tried to keep it level-headed and keep it peaceful. And I said, well, if I've misunderstood you, Pastor Dum Dum, I apologize and I cut the lunch short. At least that's the best I can remember as to what happened at that lunch, at that lunch meeting. Now, after that, you know, it's it's a real frustrating thing to me that so many of these people in this denomination have their history all messed up and backwards. So what I wanted to do was is sit down and write a detailed letter of the history of all of this and share it with them. So after that Wednesday meeting. I sat down and wrote a very lengthy letter, which I'm going to share with you here to illustrate, you know, how they've got their history wrong and illustrate, also share with you what they, what this man, Pastor Dum Dum, was teaching that he published on Sermon Audio. 
by the way, when you hear some of this, you're not going to believe what you're here. I, I highly recommend go to Sermon Audio and do a search for Pastor Dum Dum. Uh, of course, you won't find it as Pastor Dum Dum. I'm not going to give you his name. I will give you the title of the sermon that's there on Sermon Audio. Uh, you can go search it for yourself and listen to it. It's the most absurd stuff you've ever heard in your life. But anyway, so I write a letter and I write, Dear Brother friend, Pastor Tyrant, and Pastor Dum Dum. Now, of course, I didn't write those words. I wrote their names. I'm just not going to give you their names. I said, I asked the three of you to please give me the honor of reading every word of this letter. Skip nothing. Thank you. Time and again, I hear repeated from many people that the Civil War was not about slavery, that the South did not secede from the Union over slavery. This, of course, is a very convenient and sad lie. It's a lie reported and believed by probably millions of Americans who perhaps do not want to deal with America's dark past. It is a very easy lie to refute simply by quoting from the actual secession statements published by the first seven seceding states. It is a myth upon reading these that the South seceded over tariffs or some other issue. Otherwise, they would have cited these other issues. By the way, if they did secede over tariffs, which they didn't, then they seceded over something that is perfectly lawful and constitutional. It is as if Southern sympathizing Americans know better why the Southern states seceded than they themselves did. Rush Dooney, which Rush Dooney, by the way, is a theologian who's, who died in 2001 that a lot of people in this denomination have read extensively of Rush Dooney. And Rush Dooney is fantastic. I highly recommend you reading stuff by Rush Dooney. But I said, Rush Dooney wrote in one of his chapters in Systematic Theology that infallibility is an inescapable concept. When someone makes an idol of something, it will obtain an infallible characteristics in the person's mind. It is upon this phenomenon that I surmise that many have made an idol of the South, because how so many defend the South borders on insanity. It has now apparently gone so far as to defend slavery as, practic as practiced by the South as biblical. What I heard from Pastor Dum Dum in my home attempting to defend slavery, Southern slavery as biblical, was disturbing, and I'm divided over whether I should have waited to hear his answer to my question, quote, are you saying all American blacks should still be slaves? After asking this question, I quickly changed the subject because I was afraid of what I believed I was going to hear from him. If I had listened to him answer in the affirmative, I would have immediately removed him from my home. And I knew this would have created a very uncomfortable situation. Thus, I refrained and tried to make peace for the time. Since I have downloaded Pastor McDade's sermon and from Sermon Audio entitled, A Biblical Outline of Slavery and which I will review and document in the following pages to show that Pastor Dum Dum has many historical facts wrong, which thus has tainted his views. I want to be careful not to accuse of Pastor Dum Dum as a liar or an idolater because he could easily merely be a victim of learning history from liars and idolaters. Thomas Jefferson wisely said basically that true history is rare. So, I mean, in other words, I'm giving Pastor Dum Dum the benefit of the doubt that he's not an idol, an idol worshiper, but that he just doesn't have his history right. And, of course, that was the purpose of writing this letter is let me straighten out where you get, where you've made your mistakes. I recognize humans have pride, so I don't want to give you the impression that I think that somehow or another I'm going to write this letter and everybody's going to go, oh, you know what? He's got this right and we got this wrong. Let me straight, you know, but you still have to try. Anyway, so I write, and this is in his 
keep in mind, this is in his sermon on sermon audio titled A Biblical Outline of Slavery. Quote, he says, We are coming this morning to the issue directly then of slavery. In the first place, dealing with Scripture's relationship or what Scripture says about abolitionism, which is condemned in this very text we began with, soundly condemned as emanating from men of corrupt minds, unquote. First and foremost, 1 Timothy 6 says nothing about abolitionism, nor does it condemn abolitionism. How Pastor Dum Dum came up with this interpretation is anyone's guess. He then says, quote, This question, slavery and abolition, strikes at the very heart of the issue of understanding our history. The political view of the ratifiers of the United States Constitution is buried through this issue of slavery. If the states were consolidated into one government, it would be tyranny. And then he says, Now we fought a civil war in which over 600,000 men died in the argument over this issue of consolidation, over the powers delegated in the Constitution. And the South's position was both biblical and constitutional. They, southern slaveholding states, upheld the original constitutional vision, unquote. And I write, indeed, the Constitution protected slavery. It was called the Great Compromise at the convention when slavery was protected and counted as three-fifths of a person for population purposes in the southern states. And then I write, he continues, quote, For the modern Christian, the South was a slave power, and we all know that slavery is evil. And so the modern Christian cannot understand American history or the problems of American history. He has been educated by the victors who are his enemy. He is steeped in the doctrine that his enemies have given him, and he is blinded to reality. And of course, he's being very condescending. And then he, and then he says, quote, We have seen that slavery on the theoretical level is not in fact evil. That is, if Scripture is allowed to define what is good and evil. And then he says further, rhetorically and condescendingly, Quote, so slavery may be a biblical institution. It may be legitimate under certain circumstances, but the way it was practiced here, we still ought to hate the idea of Southern slavery or African slavery as it was practiced here, unquote. Of course, he's being condescending. He then moves on to tyrants thriving on division. It is interesting that he simply sidesteps the obvious. Now, this is me writing. Suppose Pastor Tyrant marries a couple in a, in a covenant wedding and declares the, cu- a, the couple a biblical marriage blessed by God. But a few years later finds out that the husband has been continually physically, mentally, and sexually abusing the wife, and she comes to him with her substantiated claim. Is Pastor Tyrant to say to her, sorry, your marriage is biblical and you must endure the abuse? Or would it be righteous to proclaim that the abuse negates the marriage? And this is the rub. And I also believe this is why Pastor Dum Dum sidesteps the obvious. If the way African slavery was practiced in the South was of such abuse as the hub as the husband to his wife, no argument that it was biblical stands. And any attempt to identify Southern slavery as biblical or to brush the abuse under the proverbial rug is quite sick. Pastor Dum Dum says that biblical slavery is not about race. That point he may be correct, and that proves the point because Southern slavery was most certainly about race when the Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger, Roger Tawney said in his Dred Scott and Sanford decision, quote, the framers of the Constitution believed that blacks 
had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic whenever profit could be made by it. That's a quote by the Supreme Court Justice uh, of that time. It was another dum-dum. Pastor Dum-Dum goes on to give a history of the origin of African slavery being the result of Muslim warring factions enslaving other factions who were defeated and selling them to Europeans. This is the essence of what he said in my home in his attempt to justify African slavery in terms of those slaves being sold to Europeans and being brought to North America. And he was saying that enslavement by winning wars was biblical. So at that point, I asked him if he then logically believed that blacks should still be slaves. But the problem is I didn't wait to hear his answer because I was afraid of what I might hear. I was already disturbed by what I was hearing, and I knew if he answered in the affirmative, like his sermon, and says that emancipation was unbiblical, that I was going to immediately usher this man out of my home. Fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, I didn't listen for the answer. I tried to be a peacemaker, but I'm not sure I was right in regarding this issue. He then goes on to say that the slave trade, being profitable, encouraged the civil wars and slave raiders and that they became commonplace. Also, he notes that crimes that were punishable by other means became punished by enslavement for profit. All well and good, but but he seems not to notice the obvious of all of this. Now, this is what I want you to catch. This is the reason why I wrote this letter to everyone in my denomination. Since all of this is true, then Southern slavery from its inception is sin and wrong. So not only is Southern slavery sin in its inception, but its practice was sin in its abuse. So to call Southern slavery biblical as well as constitutional is to falsify the obvious. Regardless if it is constitutional under the original text, this is one of the flaws of our Constitution. That which is not just is not law. Or as the Bible puts it, man cannot make straight what God has made crooked. As an illustration, when I was 17, I bought a car stereo that I knew was stolen. Just because I paid the seller what he was asking didn't make what I was doing biblical, and neither was Southern slavery. Pastor Dum Dum seemingly sidesteps the obvious to point out what a travesty it is for blacks to embrace Islam under the fact that Muslims were the ones who sold them into slavery. But wait. If slavery was biblical, how could blacks today be wrong in encouraging a religion because it was doing something that was biblical? I'm confused. I would say, rather, what a travesty it is for anyone to embrace southern slavery as if it was biblical as Pastor Dum Dum has done. While he is busy pointing out the foolishness of some blacks, he seems not to notice the foolishness of his own teachings. He says of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence that it was a quote, radical social contract theory, and is based on, quote, natural rights. Indeed, Jefferson did borrow his statement straight from the, con- the Christian John Locke. According to Locke, when the government fails to secure the people's natural rights, i.e. God-given rights, citizens can withdraw their obligation to obey or change the leadership through elections or other means, including, when necessary, violence. Locke believed that natural rights were inalienable and that the rule of God therefore superseded government authority. Wouldn't you know it? Pastor doesn't seem to notice that the South used this radical social contract theory 
to its fullest when they exercised the radical method of secession by copying Jefferson's own language. But in the South's case, that's okay to act on a belief in the social contract theory. And I put that in, I put that with several exclamation points. In other words, he's poo-pooing a, a social contract theory, but then he defends the South for exercising it. <laughs> this is why I call him Pastor Dum Dum. Then he goes on to say, in order to justify further Southern slavery, not mind you to teach the Bible, but only to justify Southern slavery, he says, quote, well, in the 1930s now, post-Civil War, the federal government undertook a project to, to speak to former slaves, and they wanted to document the horrors of what they had previously stamped out. They saw the political benefit of doing this, and so before the slave generation all died off, they sent their agents out to take pictures and have interviews and so on. They canceled the project. Because the stories the slaves told was quite different from the political narrative. The slaves told, told a story of prosperity and work. They had work, something they hadn't had since. They told a story of love for their masters. They told a story of having property themselves and actually in of masters, in some cases, borrowing the money to plant from, from their slaves. The slaves had their own property. They had their own money. They had their own living they, that they were entitled to, unquote. Now, you, you go listen to this on his sermon right there. On, yeah, that's what he says. After quoting his sermon, I gave examples in the letter to uh, you know, all three of these people of where this is not true. I went on to write some quotes by uh, people out of the writer project, uh, several of them that contradicted what he claimed. Uh, one in particular was about a woman who had earned money over a long period of time and her master come to borrow money. Uh, she agreed to let her have some money. The, ma the master never gave the money back. Uh, another example was how lots of examples of how these people were abused and beaten without cause. For no reason, the worst thing in the world was to be beaten and not know why you're being beaten, uh, hating their their masters, uh, and so forth. So I, I elaborated on it quite a bit by quoting all of these things right out of the writer's project uh, that contradicted what this dumb, Pastor Dum Dum said. Pastor Dum Dum says, quote, One old man who had been kidnapped and sold, kidnapped from his former Islamic society and brought here to hear the gospel, he said man meant it for evil. Of course, I put in parentheses here, what? Slavery is evil? I thought it was biblical. But God meant it for good. Quoting Pastor Dum Dum, Pastor Dum Dum is referring to the slave narrative project of the Federal Writers Project. It's a collection of interviews done between 1936 and 1938 with approximately 2,300 former slaves interviewed. With 2,300 former slaves interviewed, it doesn't sound like they canceled the project because the narrative they wanted to document didn't turn out correctly. Did they get to 2,299 interviews before they realized they didn't get what they wanted? While there was some positive comments from the slaves, there were just as many horror stories told. Providentially, the day after writing this, I came home late 
very late from work and relax on the couch to an Investigation Discovery Channel episode on human trafficking. After watching probably about 10 minutes about a joke to my wife that all the human traffickers needed to do was proclaim that their human trafficking was supported by the Bible and at least preachers from the RPCUS would support it. A little while later in a program, they interviewed Debbie Grebenick, who was a trauma specialist with the Colorado Council of Human Trafficking. And she said this, quote, they, the men getting services from the women, are buying a human being. We got rid of slavery, or so we thought. This is just another rendition of slavery, unquote. As you can probably tell, I'm a bit cynical over the issue, and I really cannot believe I'm having this discussion. Pastor Dum Dum reiterates, quote, Again, so the slave journals didn't produce the kind of fodder they needed to keep the narrative going, and so they were canceled. Unquote. He says the North, or the national government, needs to bury the testimony that slavery was fine for the slaves in order to enslave us. But as I shared here with 2,300 slave interviews and just as many very horrible stories of slavery, it seems quite clear that Pastor Dum Dum is sharing, either on purpose or out of ignorance, his own narrative, and it is despicable in my mind. Because there is nothing hidden, you can read all the interviews online. Of the slaves that spoke positively about their experience, it can be explained in numerous ways. They may have viewed their bondage with equanimity and forgiveness, or like the old adage that a fish doesn't know he is wet. The slaves, because they didn't know any difference, accepted their miserable lives as normal. Lastly, it may even be explained in terms of a form of Stockholm Syndrome. The ones who didn't live harsh lives simply loved and sympathized with their masters and his family. Keep in mind also, these interviews were done between 1936 and 1938. By this time, the slaves were very old, in their 80s and 90s. If slavery ended in 1865, it means these people were just children during slavery. So they perhaps didn't experience a lifelong of bondage like their parents and grandparents did. They didn't experience their own small children being torn from their arms and being sold off to never be seen again. And I ended that with an explanation point. One thing that is for certain that ends all the discussion on the subject of whether or not the slave was better off or not is illustrated by a few quotes from Abraham Lincoln. Quote, whenever I hear of anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. Unquote. And, quote, Although volume upon volume is written to prove slavery is a very good thing, we never hear of the man who wishes to take the good of it by being a slave himself, unquote. So given this reality, I've always personally asked others who have the positive mind frame about slavery to ask Pastor Dum Dum now, if slavery were a good thing, then you volunteer to be my slave. I promise to feed you and give you shelter, but you must do as I tell you and not as you wish for the entire time you are my slave, and you can't leave without my permission. If you are unwilling to do this, you are a total hypocrite in arguing as you have that slavery was a good thing. Quote, this is a world of compensations. He who would be no slave must consent to have no slave. And that was a quote by Abraham Lincoln. Pastor Dum Dum's sermon entitled a, a Biblical Outline of Slavery, but it was not that at all. It was a defense of Southern slavery because he only once referenced Scripture specifically, and in that, he took it out of context. But even if one accepts his defense of Southern slavery, Southerners themselves couldn't and didn't fully defend it. Their hypocrisy was glaring. 
Did the South and the Southern slave owners believe in what they were doing was biblical, or was there always something in the back of their own minds that said it was immoral? Did they, like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Did the South suppress the truths about the evils of slavery? Let a Northern abolitionist illustrate. Quote, Equal justice to the South, it is said, requires us to consent to the extending of slavery to new countries. That is to say, inasmuch as you do not object to my taking my hogs to Nebraska, therefore I must not object to you taking your slave. Now, I admit this is perfectly logical if there's no difference between hogs and Negroes. But while you thus require me to deny the humanity of the Negro, I wish to ask whether you of the South yourselves have ever been willing to do as much. It is kindly provided that all of those who come into this world, only a small percentage, are natural tyrants. That percentage is no larger in the slave states than in the free. The great majority, South as well as North, have human sympathies of which they can no longer divest themselves than they can of their own sensibility to physical pain. These sympathies in the bosoms of the Southern people manifest in many ways their sense of the wrong of slavery, and their consciousness that, after all, there is humanity in the Negro. If they deny this, let me, let me address them a few plain questions. In 1820, you joined the North almost unanimously in declaring the African slave trade piracy and annexing to it the punishment of death. Why did you do this? If you did not feel that it was wrong, why did you join in providing that men should be hung for it? The practice was no more than bringing wild Negroes from Africa to sell to such as would buy them. But you never thought of hanging men for catching and selling wild horses, wild buffaloes, and wild bears. <laughs> this is another quote by the same abolitionist. And yet again, there is in the United States and territories, including the District of Columbia, 433,643 free blacks. At $500 per head, they are worth over 200 millions of dollars. How comes this vast amount of property be running about without owners? We do not see free horses or free cattle running at large. How is this? All these free blacks are the descendants of slaves or have been slaves themselves, and they would be slaves now, but for something which has operated on their white owners, inducing them at vast pecuniary sacrifices to liberate them. What is that something? Is there any mistaking it? In all these cases, it is your sense of justice and human sympathy, continuing telling you that the poor Negro has some natural right to himself, that those who deny it and make mere merchandise of him deserve kickings, contempt, and death. And now, why will you ask of us deny the humanity of the slaves and estimate him only as the equal of the hog? Why ask us to do what you will not do yourselves? Why ask us to do for nothing what $200 million could not induce you to do? Unquote. As you can see, when the Apostle Paul said that men suppress the truth in their own righteousness, this rings true of the South as well. This quoted illustration shows that the South knew intuitively or naturally that slavery was wrong. Pastor Dum Dum says he can prove the South was right and that slavery was biblical. Nonsense. Pastor Dum Dum refers to the song, quote, the year of Jubilo, as, quote, rather patronizing to the black man, unquote. He tells that it was written and composed by Henry Work of Connecticut and that, quote, in other words, it's a northern song, unquote. Oh, well, then that proves it's illegitimate and sinful. 
Maybe perhaps Pastor Dum Dum, it's an expression in song of the feelings of slaves. Maybe you can't relate because you never had your five-year-old son or daughter sold off to an auction to never see again. And I put that in, in three exclamation points. He says, quote, it was written to mock the South, unquote. No, sir, that is your spin over the meaning and purpose of the song. Later, in Pastor Dum Dum's sermon, speaking about the good of slavery by telling the story of Silas Chandler, a slave who helped his master who was injured in battle. He says, quote, All this narrative about the horrors of slavery and about how it was about nothing but beatings and all goes against the story of Silas, unquote. No doubt Silas was ordered to take care of his master's son, and he did what he was told. Good for him. Apparently, Silas had more humanity about him than did his master. What is also apparent is that Pastor Dum Dum has no sentiments for Patrick Henry's declaration, Give me liberty or give me death. He seemingly has no sentiments that it is better to be poor and free than taken care of and enslaved. Yet he turns right around and contradicts himself by lamenting that we will all be slaves to the government. Which is it? Is it better to be like the slave and have the assurance of the basic necessities of life? Or is it better to be free with the chance of earning the basic, necessi the basic necessities or yet more and have better opportunities to make the most of them? No doubt, slaves were better off as slaves in the respect of having the basic necessities of food and shelter because they were indeed little chance of survival being free in the South among racists. I can't figure out from your arguments if socialism is good or bad. Is it better we should be taken care of by some master or not? Oh, let me see. Perhaps it's really like this. If the national government takes care of all of us with basic necessities, it's bad. But if whites take care of blacks with basic necessities, it's good. Duplicitous reasoning. I put that in with an exclamation point. Let all men be slaves, slaves or let all men be free. You cannot have it both ways without being a total hypocrite. Southern slavery was sin and there is no way anyone in their right mind can slice and dice it into a good thing. Now that I've taken him to task in his reasoning... I'm going to, I quote to these three men in my letter uh, quotes of our founding fathers who opposed slavery. So I write, Mar uh, Luther Martin of Maryland, a slaveholder, said, quote, It, slavery, is inconsistent with the principles of the revolution and dishonorable to the American character to have such a feature in the Constitution, unquote. John Rutledge of South Carolina responded forcefully, quote, Religion and humanity have nothing to do with this question, he insisted. Unless regulation of the slave trade was left to the states, the southernmost states shall not be parties to the Union. A Virginia delegate, George Mason, who owned hundreds of slaves, spoke out against slavery in ringing terms. Quote, slavery, he said, discourages arts and manufacturers. The poor despise labor when performed by slaves, unquote. Slavery also corrupts slaveholders and threatens the country with divine punishment, he believed. Quote, Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant, they being the judgment of heaven on a country. Now, think about that because remember I told you about a person in my church said that the, the black slaves were God's blessing to the Christian people of the South. But that's not what... <laughs> 
Obviously, that's not what George Mason said. He said every master of slaves is a born petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven on a country. So that's why I wrote that in this letter. All right, further. But according to Pastor Dum Dum, George Mason was wrong and he knows better. To him, slavery was biblical and just and good. (laughs) Now I'm going to talk about the Constitution and the South's secession from the Union, whether or not it's legal or constitutional. Uh, because remember, Pastor McDade said this is uh, the South was not only biblical, they were constitutional. So I write, was the South's secession from the Union legal or constitutional or right? Two or more parties to a contract or covenant cannot simply excuse himself from a contract he is bound to unless the other parties release him from the contract. It is true that if some of the parties of a contract are in material breach of their obligations, that naturally, that naturally releases the innocent offended members from the contract. But was the election of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency a material breach? Hardly. Even when there is a material breach of contract, there is still a requirement for the offended members to petition for a redress of their grievances. There was no petition on the part of the South for any redress but because uh, there was no material breach, except that Abraham Lincoln was the first elected president from a new national party that was openly opposed to slavery. As one Southern politician said, South Carolina is too small for a republic and too big for an insane asylum. Unquote. I said, well said. Chief Justice Roger Taney, the famous, the justice famous for his legal, quote-unquote, legal argument in the Dred Scott case, who said that a black man had no rights that white man was bound to respect, said that secession was unconstitutional. And then the President of the United States, James Buchanan, a slave-sympathizing Democrat, said secession wasn't legal or constitutional. No, a state gets out of the Union by the very same measure a state comes into the Union. It is no more complicated than this, and any argument otherwise is simply an argument to support the infallibility of the South's actions, which is born of idolatry. Pastor Dum Dum said in one of his slave sermons that Thomas Jefferson's social contract theory in the Declaration was radical. Really, President Kennedy remarked at a dinner at the White House honoring Nobel, Nobel Prize winners, quote, I want to tell you how welcome you are to the White House. I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent of human knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. (laughs) Of course, I love that quote. That's why I put it in here. Pastor Dum Dum perhaps thinks he's smarter than wiser than Thomas Jefferson, but was Thomas Jefferson's social contract theory radical? No, it was Christian. Historians have attributed Jefferson's social contract theory to John Locke's theories of government. First off, sadly, many refer to John Locke as a deist or some other such non-Christian. But the following quote is John Locke's statement of his own faith. Quote, The Holy Scriptures is to me, and always will be, the constant guide of my belief, and I shall always hearken to it, as containing infallible truth relating to the things of the highest concernment. And I wish I could say there is no mysteries in it. I acknowledge there are to me, and I fear always will be. But where I lack the evidence of things, yet... There yet is ground enough for me to believe, because God has said it, and I shall immediately condemn and quiet any opinion of mine as soon as I am shown it is contrary to any revelation in the Holy Scriptures, unquote. 
Locke also believed that no man could be saved apart from the faith in Jesus Christ. Quote, not that any to whom the gospel hath been preached shall be saved without believing Jesus to be the Messiah. For all being sinners and transgressors of the law and so unjust are all liable to condemnation unless they believe. And so through the grace are justified by God for his faith, which shall be accounted to them for righteousness, unquote. And the reason I did this is because so many of these people that defend Southern slavery, they have to poo-poo Thomas Jefferson's All Men Are Created Equal. Well, he got it from John Locke. And in order to poo-poo John Locke, they claim he's not a Christian. I just gave you his own quotes. So I write further. According to Locke, the law of nature and the law of God are two expressions of the same law. The law of nature is the external law that God established in creation and inscribes in men's consciences, which subsequently, subsequently, when men no longer benefited financially from slavery, began to see the sin of it. It was written on their consciences as long as they weren't suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness on behalf of their financial enrichment. The, quote, law of God is the same eternal moral law as the law of nature, only it is revealed as God's positive law in Scripture. These explanations of Locke were nothing new. Our educated founders knew that both sides of these terms, the laws of nature and of nature's God, had a settled place in mainstream Christian orthodoxy. This is why Christians like John Witherspoon, by the way, who was a Presbyterian, had no reservations about signing the Declaration of Independence. The social compact theory, which Pastor Dum Dum calls radical, is simply a clear Christian understanding that though God instituted the realm of civil government, Romans 13, in practicality, government is, according to Locke, a human creation, and he referenced 1 Peter 2.13. That is, that particular governments or particular forms of government are instituted by men through their common consent, not by direct divine decree. This is important because Christianity has a long history of teaching that civil leaders do not govern by divine right. We get this form of teaching regarding lawful revolution. This is repeated through Christian history from the teachings of Manigold about the year of 1080, the Magna Carta of 1215, to John Calvin, uh, by the way, another Presbyterian, where he said that in his institutes that, that private individuals could not resist tyranny with a mob uprising, but that the people may appoint popular, quote, this is a quote by John Calvin, popular magistrates to curb the tyranny of kings, unquote. From there to the French Calvinist Vindicae contra Tyrannus, which is full of scripture and says that governing authority is based on the law being above the king and the people being above the king and the governing authority is based on compact. Next is Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex of 1644, which is written to refute Robert Maxwell's defense of the divine right of kings. According to Rutherford, men instituted particular governments while God ordains the proper scope and authority of civil government by divine law. Lex Rex's major legal principles are essentially the same to the principles proclaimed by the radical Declaration of Independence regarding social compacts. So, it appears that many in the denomination have read the same history revision regarding both Locke's and Jefferson's view of social compact as those that defend slavery and the South, no doubt written by people of or from the South, also known as 
Robert Louis Dabney. Dabney writes, quote, This theory, all men are created equal, thus established between all men a moral but not a mechanical equality, unquote. He says that all men, quote, hold different relations to each other in society, corresponding to their different capacities and fitnesses, unquote. As if to say, and no doubt to make the argument that slaves were in their just position in society. Well, the problem with Dabney's statement is that he assumes that Jefferson meant a mechanical equality, but he didn't. He meant that all people are alike equal under the law of God and that God gave every man some basic, certain, inalienable rights. Jefferson's view of these rights come from the Bible. Jefferson's statements that all men were created equal with their right to life comes from, quote, be fruitful and multiply. That the only time man can be deprived of life is if he forfeits that right under God's law through just jurisprudence, that is, due process of law. Jefferson's statement that God gave all men liberty comes from, quote, subdue the earth and take dominion thereof. That requires liberty because he cannot take dominion without liberty. And all men were endowed with the right to pursue happiness comes from the right of property, which comes from when God committed the world and its resources to Adam and Eve under his sovereignty, obviously. And, of course, the Eighth Commandment affirms the right to property, most especially in the property of your own self, and to not be the property of any other man without due process. And, obviously, slaves were the property of others without due process of law. Dabney, having fought for Southern slavery, thus must defend his position, and he can only probably do this by twisting the meaning often used by abolitionists to, fin to defend their position that all men are created equal. Lincoln puts this into proper perspective when he said, There is no reason in the world why the Negro is not entitled to all the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I hold that he is as much entitled to these as the white man. I agree with Judge Douglas. He is not my equal in many respects, certainly not in color, perhaps not in moral or intellectual endowment. But in the right to eat the bread without leave of anybody else, which his own hand earns, he is my equal and the equal of Judge Douglas and the equal of every living man. This is the equality Jefferson was referring to, and it is the exact equality that Dabney fought to deny to the black people. And like Lincoln, it is a position I cannot but hate. One more thing about Dabney that is incredibly inconsistent. He denounced the slave trade as an unscriptural exercise in man-stealing, but according to his logic, once the theft has taken place, keep the stolen merchandise, keep the stolen humans, nuts. All of this is serious implications, because without knowing it, folks who defend Dabney's definition of things, which thus makes you reject Jefferson and Lincoln's definition of things, you will find yourself inadvertently embracing Satan's definition of things. Allow me to illustrate. I once had a discussion with an acquaintance about the election of Barack Obama to the presidency, and this acquaintance of mine couldn't wait to vote for him. He said of Obama, quote, he will be a fine president. Of course, I knew better, but I needed a clear way to prove to this man that Obama was a tyrant. Merely saying that he was going to be a tyrant would avail me nothing in the way of persuasion, so I attempted to illustrate with the following email. Quote, I would like you to answer a question for me, Danny. 
How can you vote for a liberal Democrat when they support the killing of the innocent? If Democrats are okay with denying life to the most innocent, why do you think they really care about your liberty? Think about that real deeply. Here's a quote by Abraham Lincoln. You tell me if you agree with it. Quote, nearly 80 years ago, we began by declaring all men are created equal. But now from that beginning, we have run down to the other declaration that for some men to enslave others is a, quote, sacred right of self-government, unquote. These principles cannot stand together. They are as opposite as God and mammon, and whoever holds to one must despise the other. Danny, tell me you don't disagree with Lincoln's words here. If not, then you cannot disagree with this slight modification of his words. Quote, Nearly 233 years ago, we began by declaring all men are created equal. But now from that beginning, we have run down to the other declaration that for some women to abort their babies is a, quote, right to privacy. These principles cannot stand together. They are as opposite as God and mammon, and whoever holds to one must despise the other. Did you get that? Let me repeat it. Whoever holds to one must despise the other. Let me ask again. If Democrats are okay with denying life to the most innocent, why do you think they really care about your liberty? As Lincoln said, they hold, if they hold to one, they must despise the other. Democrats hate liberty. You just can't see it. Another, another quote by Abraham Lincoln. In giving freedom to the slave, we ensure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. Let me rewrite Lincoln's words here. In giving life to the fetus, we ensure life and liberty to the living, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. In denying life to the fetus, we threaten and destroy liberty to ourselves. After all, if it's okay to kill the unborn, why then wouldn't it be okay to kill the elderly? I hope and pray this illustration resonates with you, because the principles and values that led to eradicating slavery throughout Western Christianity and in the North after they no longer financially benefited from it, its last stronghold was the South, which did financially benefit from it, is the same values that could lead millions into believing that abortion is wrong for the same biblical reasons. The slave and the baby were and are being denied their right to life and liberty without due process of law. These things are the same thing, but you will not be able to see them because you are too busy embracing an idol. Intellectualism prevents some people from seeing the obvious. The more powerful the mind, the greater the potential havoc. The perfect passion is one sanctioned by a set of principles that's greater than the passion itself. It's not a particular passion idealized. The passion or idolatry of the South has been and is being idealized by principles foreign to the simple Christian ethic, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If Dabney or anyone else who defends Southern slavery wasn't willing to take the place of the slaves, they were hypocritical. Therefore, the source of this passion among so many people for the South is from direct idolatry or from sources of historic revisionism written by those who've made an idol of the South. But idolatry is the source. As with any idol, infallibility is necessary. The South could do no wrong. Either the South didn't secede over slavery, but for some other more lofty reason, as the revisionists attempt to explain, or secession was constitutional, which it wasn't. Or, worst of all, Southern chattel slavery was and is biblical, which would be a violation of simple Christian ethics, all of which is historic revisionism designed to support the idol. One last thing, dear Pastor Tyrant. Of course, I didn't say Tyrant. I put his name. 
I've heard you lament that perhaps our church and denomination isn't growing because you believe our unrepentant sins are a hindrance. Just a thought, but could it be possible that God is withholding his blessings because of this issue, this idolatry? Sincerely and respectfully, Lee Carter. All right, well, this was the letter I wrote them and, you know, trying to clarify that they're wrong on their history. Now, of course, I knew I, I took a lot of time in writing all this, and I knew it probably wasn't going to go anywhere. I mean, I've been dealing with these people for five or six years, and it didn't matter what discussion, what principle, what Bible verse, it doesn't matter. They do not listen. The South could do no wrong. But I still, you know, I have a duty as a Christian to share the truth, regardless of whether or not they'll receive it. Now, needless to say, they didn't like my letter. And so my pastor... Pastor Tyrant, which, by the way, I'll get into why I call him Tyrant. Uh, that's when this this uh, podcast is going to get extremely interesting because you won't believe that people can act like this. Uh, but anyway, uh, he wrote me back, and I'm going to read that letter to you. But I, then I wrote him back in response to this letter. But the way I wrote back was to interject in between everything that he said to me. So I'm going to read it that way. I'm going to read what he wrote, then I'm going to stop and and read to you what I interjected. He writes, You and your family have been a great delight to me for more than six years, and I pray that this will continue. This letter to you is the hardest letter I've had to write, and you know I have had a number of difficult letters to write in the past. What I will eventually write here comes without any malice or ill will, but entirely out of love for the Lord Jesus, his word, and for you and your family. As your pastor and your friend, I am obligated to speak openly and directly from my heart and from the written word of God. I am certain you understand this and expect nothing less from me. You urged me, along with Pastor Dum Dum and friend, to give you the honor of reading every word of your letter. Skip nothing. I'm sure you will do likewise with this letter. My concern is not the issue of Southern slavery, nor the complex causes of the war fought in 1860 on American soil. It is the spiritual issues that weigh upon my heart. Now, I interject here and said, how can it not be about the issue of Southern slavery when this is my chief complaint? Pastor Dum Dum was speaking to me in my home about American history surrounding Lincoln, the South, the North, and that is when he said that abolition was sin, which thus prompted me to ask the logical question, quote, are you saying all blacks should still be slaves? Now, of course, back to his letter to me. That was just my interjection. This was, you know, Obviously, the letter I writ to him, wrote back to him with my interjection. So his original letter, you appear to delight in the subject of the Confederacy, slavery, and President Lincoln, and the tone this takes is often, often combative. And I interject, indeed, this I admit. But my combativeness stems from hearing people with false history defend the practice of slavery, which is the tantamount equivalent of defending the murder of the unborn and being done with lies. Imagine most people in your church saying that to you that Roe versus Wade wasn't about abortion in an attempt to justify abortion. Would you be calm and collected every time you hear the lie repeated again and again in order to support the evil of abortion? Southern chattel slavery was sin, and to hear people defend those who practiced it, waged war to defend it, destroyed the Constitution and lied about it, I, indeed, I get angry. Peeved at the abject stupidity of defending what is indefensible, 
I will not associate with such people. I've tried to reason and explain the true history, but no one in this denomination seems to be able to listen to anything other than what their Southern propaganda has taught them. I tried for six years to sway the thinking of you, friend, and some others at times. But when this became a subject of the pulpit and none are even remotely ready to denounce it, I'm done. If that is combative and contentious, I will wear it as a badge of honor. He continues, perhaps six years ago, friend, decided no longer to engage with you if you brought up the subject. Five years ago, I wrote to you and said that the discussions were not edifying and I no longer wanted to be involved in, with them. TT, which is another person that was in our church, wrote to you on January 2013 that he did not wish to debate the subject with you. In March, Pastor Dum Dum was a guest in your home. The first night he was, according to him, looking at your picture of either Lee or Jackson and admiring it. You said to him that there was a picture on the other wall that he would not think so well of. He looked at it, which was the picture of President Lincoln, and decided to pick up the friendly banter. So he asked you, where are the darts? From there, the discussion deteriorated. Now I interject. I didn't deteriorate the conversation. I never once got ugly. I never once insulted him or his belongings standing in his home. So you tell me who was combative. Who was combative? I refuse to be made into the evil one here. I was delighted to have Pastor Dum Dum in my home. He was a member of the Plymouth Rock Foundation, one presided over by my favorite history Bible teacher, Pastor Paul Jaley. I thought I was getting a man of the same mindset. I did not set out to cause a division, as I never would have imagined he had such horrific views. I found out quickly with a flippant statement about Lincoln, and Pastor McDade turned it into an insult of my property. I have very thick skin, and I dismissed this, diffused the situation by changing the subject by saying to him and his wife that you said he would keep me up until 3 o'clock talking. When they laughed at this jocular statement, we moved on from a tense moment to a lighthearted one. I'm not the bad guy here, and I refuse to be spoken to by you or anyone else as if I am such. If you find it necessary to demonize me or in order to defend that man's indefensible teachings, that is your horrible problem. It won't be mine. His paragraph continues. This brings to my mind Titus 3, 8. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genialities and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Also, 1 Timothy 3, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, unquote. Additionally, Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another, unquote. Do you think you have the tendency to engage in certain subjects in which you fail to exercise self-control and become combative? And I interjected, not at all. As I've already said, it was I who, realizing that Pastor Dum Dum just might believe, following the logic of his argument, 
that he opposed freeing the slaves in the South, who quickly changed the subject by making a joke that you, Jeff, warned me that Pastor Dum Dum would keep me up until 3 a.m. He and his wife laughed, and we quickly moved on to showing them the rest of my home. I think this, above all, demonstrates that I took the scripture serious when it says, Blessed are the peacemakers. He continues, I do enjoy a good fight, but these are not good in God's sight. And by his grace, I sincerely, but not perfectly, seek to obey the Bible's commands as above. Never compromise the truth of God's word, but also never equate my inferences and deductions as being equal to God's written word. Dum Dum said that in Monday night's discussion. He told you he was not interested in discussing Southern slavery as he did not know enough history to do so authoritatively. But he did want to discuss what the Bible teaches about slavery. I interject. If this is so, he never said this to me. The only reference to scripture I recollect was him saying that God's word forbids the abolition in the context of talking about the South, secession, abolition, etc. Thus, this prompted me to ask the perfectly logical question, are you saying all blacks should still be slaves? Now, you can obviously see, if you're, if you're listening to this, you obviously can see that he, we most certainly were talking about uh, history. It wasn't until we talked about abolition that he said, well, the Bible condemns it. That was the only reference to scripture. So guess what? Pastor Dum Dum is lying. He continues, you apparently said you were not interested in seeing what the Bible had to say on it. I interjected here and said, this did not happen. And no such thing was said by me in Monday night or in my home. He, he continues, Tuesday morning at breakfast with you, Dum Dum, and myself, the subject was again broached, and we both heard Paul say the same thing again, that his interest was not Southern slavery, but what God says about slavery. I interject here. I don't recall any discussion of slavery at breakfast the next morning, and I think if it was discussed, I would certainly have remembered it. I will welcome anything that would, that would refresh my memory. Uh, he continues, you said you were not interested in looking at the Bible teaching. Wednesday afternoon with you, friend, dum-dum, and myself, this subject by design was discussed. And the third time stated that he was not interested in Southern slavery, but wanted to look into the Bible teaching. For the third time, you said you were not interested in what the Bible said. I interjected here. This is in fact accurate, but the context is this. I am not willing to listen to anyone take the Bible and use it as a tool to defend Southern chattel slavery. I'm perfectly familiar with both sides of the biblical argument. I've made up my mind and Pastor Dum Dum's arguments nor anyone else's arguments will persuade me. I've made up my mind perfectly that the Bible in no way supports how Americans, both North and South, East and West, practiced it. Other than this, I will talk about what the Bible says about particular types and uses of slavery, and all other regulations of it by God and His Word. In fact, it is probably the single most used method by me when sharing the legal aspects of the gospel to persuade people of it. And if you will recall, we did some of this Wednesday's meeting at the coffee shop. Pastor Tyrant continues, Pastor Dum Dum's just defense of his position, which is a violation of the Ninth Commandment, 
Acts 5, 56, 57. This is a grievous sin against love towards your neighbor and even more so against your brother and pastor. Now, I just got to stop here for a minute. Uh, this is not this is not something that I responded to him. But as you'll see right here, uh, how dare I not listen to his word? I mean, he acts like he's a pope or something. And of course, you're going to see when you hear the rest of the story, this man actually thinks he is a pope. He thinks he's a uh, he speaks an infallible word. Uh, he continues, explicitly declared he was not defending Southern slavery, but he had studied sufficient first source writings to call into question the full veracity of much Northern narrative regarding Southern slavery. But even as he pointed this out, he reiterated that his interest was not in Southern slavery, but in what God's word says about slavery. And of course, I interject. But the problem here is this is not what he did in my home and is not what he did in his sermon entitled A Biblical Outline of Slavery. In that sermon, he only referenced one line of scripture and the rest was devoted to a defense of, of the South by way of wrongly demonizing the North in history. He continues, Lee, you are not accurately representing in your letter nor to others apparently what Pastor Dum Dum thinks. You have alleged that Pastor Dum Dum believes in perpetual slavery. This is manifestly not true in the sense which you give it. And I interject, but this is the context in which he said it, both in my home and in his sermon. He continues, both he and I spoke to you about Leviticus 25:39. The Hebrew slave was to be set free on the year of Jubilee, but the foreigner born slave, quote, you can use them as permanent slaves. Both of us explained this text to mean that the foreign slave was not scheduled for release according to, the, to a calendar or a jubilee year, but rather he was to be set free when the goal of his slavery was accomplished. Though we did not speak of it on Wednesday's meeting, the permanent slavery has a particular establishment in the law of God, hence the difference between Leviticus and Exodus. God's law legitimizes permanent slavery in Exodus 21. Quote, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him permanently. The permanent of Leviticus means no schedule free freedom date, whereas the permanent of Exodus means no freedom date at all. I interject. Fine and well, but these passages have to do with voluntary slavery and has nothing to do with perpetual chattel slavery, so it cannot be used for as a defense of chattel slavery. But Pastor Dum Dum does indeed try to make this case for the South's slavery using these other passages. He continues, God commands us, quote, not to speak evil of a ruler, Acts 23, 5, nor to slander, Psalms 15, Proverbs 10, Ephesians 4. Though I initially wrote that I did not want to deal with specifics of your statements, here is one of two exceptions. You wrote, quote, after quoting 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, Pastor McDade says, quote, we are coming this morning to the issue directly then of slavery. In the first place, dealing with Scripture's relationship to what Scripture says about abolitionism, which is condemned in the very text we began with, soundly condemned as emanating from men of corrupt minds, unquote. 
first and foremost, 1 Timothy 6 says nothing about abolitionism, nor does it condemn abolitionism. How Pastor McDay came up with that interpretation is anyone's guess, unquote. Now, of course, he's quoting me. He, he writes, this is an accusation against Pastor Dum Dum's ability to handle the scripture faithfully. <laughs> In other words, he's infallible. I interject. I couldn't agree more. Indeed, it's because that passage says nothing about abolition. He continues, like Pastor Dum Dum, I do see this text as rebuking abolitionism. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the slave is to honor his master, then surely the abolitionist is to honor the slave's master. And then I interject. If you are talking about a legal just slavery, such as payment of a debt, payment of a crime or theft, or voluntary, I could not agree more. But this was being used to defend Southern slavery. It was being used to defend a sinful, barbaric practice of American chattel slavery. This is the context in which it was taught. He continues, The slave's master is worthy of honor in the mind of the Holy Spirit. How does the abolitionist honor the slave's master? I interject. The northern abolitionist, since we are using the word abolitionist, was altogether righteous in working to abolish a sinful type of slavery. Don't take passages out of their rightful context and use them for another context. He continues. Rather, he does him great dishonor by vilifying him. Lee, you are handling the scripture faithfully at this point? Question mark. I interject. Yes, I am. He writes, have you maligned one of the Lord's ambassadors? See how they're seeing themselves as some kind of, uh, you know, put up on a pedestal not to be questions. It's, it's, the, these people are nuts. I interject. No, I have not. Was Peter Lord's ambassador? Was Paul wrong to confront Peter in his wrong? Pastor Dum Dum is wrong here, and I don't feel it is in no way wrong to take him or anyone to account for their using passage of Scripture to defend a sinful and barbaric practice. He continues, The other particular you wrote, quote, After watching probably about 10 minutes of it, a Discovery Channel episode on human trafficking, I joked to my wife that all the human traffickers needed to do was proclaim that the human trafficking was supported by the Bible and that at least preachers from the denomination would support it, unquote. Lee, how could you say such a wicked accusation against us who labor diligently to handle God's word accurately is baffling to me? What a despicable opinion you must have of me as your pastor. What is the condition of your heart? I would never have imagined you could have thought or spoken such an accusation against me and my fellow presbyters. My friend, where is the fruit of the Holy Spirit of temperance and self-control? I interject. Not too many weeks ago, friend and I were discussing another member of the church and how he withholds food from his children as punishment. And friend expressed that he'd like to take this individual out to the woods and fix him so his mouth was wired shut so he couldn't eat. I suppose either friend was expressing an emotion about the situation or friend was being evil and having real evil thoughts. But I understood him perfectly. Likewise, when Pastor Dum Dum told about the song, The Year of Jubilo, and said that the song was despicable because it sang in praise of the master being destitute and how ugly it was to realize that it was a song of emotion, an expression of how someone feels about a subject, 
Not that it was a real feeling any more than friends' feeling of wanting to beat our church member until his jaw was wired shut. And if you'll notice, I said to my wife, jokingly, because it is an expression of how I feel about having to have a discussion about Southern chattel slavery and whether or not it is biblical. That is all. He continues, Lee, you have misrepresented both Pastor Dum Dum and myself and refuse to hear what we say. You have stated that we support Southern slavery. Both of us are not interested particularly in that subject nor studied sufficiently in the particular history to render a judgment. I interject. What? What a pathetic cop-out. How much more evidence do you need to know it was sin? This is nothing more than a dance around the subject because you don't want to admit that you've been wrong all these years. Muslims warring and capturing black tribes of people in Africa and profitably selling them to Europeans means once it is profitable, it became common. It doesn't take much gray matter in one's head to figure out that most blacks sold into slavery were stolen men. Slavery was sin, and those who defended it are sinners. And yes, good men like Jackson and Lee and the state of Virginia, by attaching their destinies with those states who did secede over slavery, were sinners by association. He continues, We have said this plainly to you. We do believe to be true what the Bible teaches concerning slavery. To whatever extent the black and white slave owners treated their slaves according to the Bible, they were righteous. To whatever extent the black and white slave owners treated their slaves contrary to the Bible, they were sinning. To what extent either of these might be, we are not capable of saying. But to condemn them all is to slander at least some proportion of them. I interject. Slavery was sin, and regardless of the fact that some good men like, say, Jefferson indulged in it and personally profited from it, does not change the fact that they were sinning. He continues to write, What do we think of slavery? Though I will not give anything near of a full treatment, I will lay out some major lines of thought derived from the Word of God. These are not arranged in any particular order. First, the institution of slavery is defined and regulated by God, hence cannot be essentially evil. Abraham's servant or slave referred to God blessing Abraham with many slaves. I interject. What kind of slaves were these? The Bible does not expressly say. Were they hired workers? Were they voluntary? Were they paying off a debt or a crime? The Bible does not say. So to use this as evidence that Southern slavery was thus not wrong is to be less than honest. An honest man says openly that he doesn't know what kind of slaves they were and thus cannot honestly use this as an example of support for Southern chattel slavery. Abraham was blessed with wealth and as such, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary as an example of such wealth that he had many hired servants. He continues, second, Man-stealing is sin and a capital offense. I interject. Southern chattel slavery was based on this alone, so how anyone could think it was not sin is beyond my ability to understand. He continues. Third, slaves owned by covenant members were considered to be in the covenant also, for the law required their circumcision and their consequent participation in the Passover. I interject. I would take this to mean that the slave owner had a responsibility to evangelize the slaves. They are under his direct care, and he has continual access to them. Thus, he has a full captive audience for discipleship in God's truth. 
He continues, Fourth, slaves could be acquired three lawful ways, purchase, birth, or conquest. I interject. Conquest only in a just war, and blacks sold to Europeans were not a just war, thus making it sin. He continues, Fifth, masters were to treat their slaves righteously. I interject. This goes without saying. He continues, Sixth, permanent slavery was instituted by God who designed a ceremony for its establishment. I interject. Again, this is voluntary slavery. He continues, Seventh, overly harsh and harmful treatment of slaves was lawful grounds requiring his being granted freedom. I interject. In the case of a debt payment, if the slave was mistreated, restitution for the mistreatment would have been freedom freedom from paying the rest of his debt. He continues, Eighth, slaves could love their masters and become their sons. Conversely, the masters could love their slaves. I interject. Or anybody else for that matter. I have two adopted children. He continues. Ninth, slaves were to learn from the example of their masters and become like him. I interject. Of course, spread the gospel of truth to everyone by example. He continues. Tenth, Jesus spoke of his followers as slaves in many of his parables. He could not have used this terminology if slavery was essentially evil. Jesus never called his children harlots for Jesus. I interject. I never said slavery was evil. I only said a certain type, which is based on man-stealing. Southern chattel slaves were stolen men and women. He continues, 11th. Though freedom is better than slavery and should be pursued lawfully, slavery is not incompatible with being a Christian. I interject. Indeed, Christians can own debt. They can steal and need to make restitution, and they can even volunteer to be a slave. And Christians can avoid bondage by simply not sinning. He continues, Twelfth, slaves were to render good service to their earthly masters, knowing that they were serving their heavenly master. I interject, we should render good service to all whom we serve, period. He continues, You have accused us of twisting scripture, falsely representing us, spoken rashly and harshly, been contentious, accused us of idolatry, and more. Notice he says, I've been contentious. Now, he's, he's doing a layup for something he's going to do to me later. So uh, stay with me because I'm going to tell you about all about uh, how they excommunicated me for being contentious. Anyway, I interject that either Dum Dum's teachings stem from idolatry of the South or he is the victim of getting history revision from those who idolize the South. I chose my words very carefully. I have indeed accused you of twisting scripture to defend a sinful type of slavery, and so speaking harshly was justified. Did Paul speak rashly and harshly when he confronted Peter to his fa- for his sin? Because that is what this all boils down to. I confronted a wrong, and I am the one who is being reprimanded. I think you should be ashamed of yourselves. You will all have to answer to God why you considered Paul more guilty than Peter. He continues, This has not been pleasing to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are concerned that you, quote, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and not be a cause of contention and division within the body of Christ as gathered at the denomination church and beyond. Lee, you are formally required to meet with the session together with friend this Saturday, April 22nd, 2017 at 4 at the Troutville Park or at the friend's home. You may choose the place. This is so fascinating that I wrote this after the park meeting. 
Because that I'm telling you, that's what he was doing a layup for. He was going to do a slam dunk, excommunicating me for contentiousness. Now, I'm going to tell you about the park meeting here in a minute. But uh, this is what I wrote at the end of this letter. And obviously, this letter came after the park meeting. When we met at the park, when you found you couldn't nail me on being contentious, you quickly moved on to your concern that I mishandled Scripture. No, sir. You are an amazing teacher of the Scriptures. But when it came to this subject, you and Pastor Dum Dum are the one who are mishandling Scripture. In fact, you just lose your minds. And because of it, what a fine mess you've made. I formally request a letter of transfer. I cannot and will not associate with people who have such a jaundiced view of a pathetic and horrible sin that was Southern chattel slavery. There is no defense of secession, no defense for rewriting of history, and certainly no defense for making square pegs fit into round holes by defending what the South did as biblical. All right, now, as I just mentioned, I wrote this, obviously, after we had the park meeting. So I want to tell you about the park meeting. And like I had mentioned before, you know, I record things. You know, when, when stuff like this happens, I record it because I know some people, you, you always risk somebody misunderstanding somebody so we can rehash or go over what was said. That's always a, an issue of me misunderstanding somebody or somebody misunderstanding me. So that's why I record it. And the second reason I record it is because people, when it comes to stuff like this, when they're defending the indefensible, guess what they'll do? They will lie. So that's why I recorded it. Now, I've got to share with you what exactly it was happened at this meeting at the park. Now, there are a couple of places in this recording that you couldn't hear. There was a child at the park riding around on an electric scooter or something, and every time he rode by, you can't hear in the recording what was being said. So there are some, some short, small places, but I think we can make out most of it, the overwhelming majority of it, of course. Now, after we prayed for the meeting, the conversation went as follows. Pastor Tyrant begins, quote, Do you have any response to my letter since it was a response to yours? Of course, you know, I've already read you this last letter. Uh, but anyway, I said, yes, I'm sure I can come up with plenty. Pastor Tyrant, what is your response then? I said then, well, I mean, you called me here. I figured you probably wanted to bring something to my attention, so I'd prefer to let you lay the, lead the way. Pastor Tyrant, Lee, you started this. I responded to you. You should not characterize it in the other direction. And I said, fair enough. Pastor Tyrant, but yes, I think you have acted... Now, at this point, it got inaudible as the child rode by, so he's probably saying I've acted unbiblical or accusatory because the next thing I said is, I disagree. I didn't call anyone an idolater. I chose my words very carefully. The history revision that Pastor Dum Dum was preaching is either stemming from this, his own idolatry, or he was learning his history from those who have idolized the South. That is not calling him an idolater. That is just getting to the root of the issue as to why he's got his history wrong. My concern that it is being preached from the pulpit that chattel slavery is as it was practiced by Europeans, American colonists, the South, the North, and so forth, is biblical. Pastor Dum Dum. I'm sorry, Pastor Tyrant. You would have to prove that charge if you wish to charge Pastor Dum Dum. I'll help you write the charges if you want, but you must write them to Presbytery, not me. And I responded, if that is the proper procedure, yes. He has a sermon on sermon audio that is very clear. It is entitled, A Biblical Analysis of Slavery, and it is not that. It is a Southern defense of slavery by way of demonizing the North. 
So if you are going to preach slavery, as you gave references in your letter, that the Bible supports slavery. He didn't reference any of those lines of scripture, so you can change. And then Pastor Tyrant interjects, I didn't say he did. And I said, I'm sorry. And Pastor Tyrant goes, I didn't say he did. And I said, well, I don't mean you specifically. I mean, when I say you, I mean in a general you. Um, If you're going to title your sermon a biblical analysis of slavery, make it a biblical analysis of slavery. I don't have a problem with with the biblical definitions of slavery whatsoever. In fact, when I'm ever witnessing to someone about the beauties of God's law, actually, I go right to that specific biblical line of slavery and show, you know, what's a better way of handling the crime of theft or the crime of indebtedness, if you want to call it a crime or Go to the Bible, it says man is to make restitution, and if you can't make restitution, he is to work it off. Would you rather put a man in jail? And we talked about this on Wednesday. We talked about this, I don't know, I don't have a problem with talking about what the Bible defines as biblical slavery. I have a problem with saying chattel slavery is biblical. That's my problem, because it is not. Pastor Tyrant responds, you'll have to take that up with him, because I don't know that he uses the term chattel slavery. I've also never heard him defend chattel slavery. I responded, okay, correct. I would agree with that. He has not said chattel slavery, because... He is assuming that Southern American colonies, European, whatever way you want to put it, slavery was chattel slavery. That's what it was. Pastor Tyrant responds, that's between you and Pastor Dum Dum. And you need to put that in writing and you don't need to transcribe the entire sermon. But two or three sentences, transcribe those and write the time frame. I responded. Now, before I decide to do that, I have a question for both of you, friend and Pastor Tyrant. Do you believe the way European, American, colonial, southern slavery was practiced can be defended with the Bible? Pastor Tyrant, I'll give you the same answer Pastor Dum Dum did. We are not interested in studying and giving an assessment of a particular precise history. Neither know sufficiently to do so, nor find it profitable to do so. The institution of slavery is biblically ordained by God as a remedial institution. Slavery is not evil. I responded, Biblically defined, slavery is not evil. I agree. Pastor Tyrant, no, no, that's arcane. The institution of slavery is not evil, just like the institution of marriage is not evil. Men may be married and be tyrants, and masters may be tyrants, and slaves may be lazy, but that doesn't deal with the institution. The people within the institution may indeed not do it biblically, but that is is a different issue. Just because there were abusive husbands, I'm not going to be an abolitionist against marriage. I responded, Jeff, to me, you are dancing around the issue because when he made a statement in my home and made a sermon, he is defending that form of slavery as biblical. Pastor Tyrant responds, he said three times he didn't. He told me that Monday. I heard him say that Tuesday. I heard him say that Wednesday. I responded, He did not say that in my home. That is not true, Pastor Tyrant. Then you need to charge him with lying. I responded, I came real close when we had that meeting Wednesday, and I said to him, I apologize for misunderstanding. I was real hesitant to do that because I knew he was lying. You have to understand what happened. We were talking about history. It started with a picture on a wall. We talked about Lincoln. We talked about the North. We talked about the South and why they seceded. We were talking about history. He never said, no, no, no. We're talking about the Bible. That was never said. 
Melanie will tell you that was never said. So when he said that Wednesday, he's lying, Pastor Tyrant. You can put that in your charges also. I responded, I have to confess, I cannot go on in this church or this denomination with people who believe that chattel slavery is biblical. Pastor Tyrant responds, you keep using that terminology. Nobody has said they believe in it. We don't even know what chattel slavery is. (laughs) Can you believe this? (laughs) I believe masters can act sinfully, but slavery is biblical. And I responded, any and all slavery? Pastor Tyrant says, you are making a division. I responded, no, any and all slavery? Pastor Tyrant, marriage is defined by God, hence it is a righteous thing. I responded, okay, God defines man-stealing. Pastor Tyrant, yeah, Paul is clear on that. I said, it's sin, correct? Pastor Tyrant says, yeah. I responded, okay, so chattel slavery is man-stealing. Pastor Tyrant says, I have no idea of that. I don't know what chattel slavery is. I know that slavery existed for 200 years, 250 years when the war broke out. And probably none of the southern slave owners went down in, went down in a ship and stole a man. They were already there. I responded, I didn't steal a car stereo, but I bought one that I knew was stolen. Pastor Tyrant, no, no, not if it has been passed on to you after 20 generations. I responded, okay, so you are assuming then... If we can just get past the first stolen slave, carried right out of Africa, stolen, and his descendants were not stolen, therefore, it is therefore biblical, and I reject that notion. Pastor Tyrant, first off, I'm not arguing that, Lee. I'm concerned what the Bible teaches, and I'm not concerned with the practice in 1860. It is not for me to judge if every man back then will decide whether or not If the right master or wrong master, or if they were a good slave or a bad slave, that is immaterial. Why are you so married to a particular slice of history and are willing to excommunicate brothers and sisters in Christ if they don't agree with you? I responded, because preaching it from the pulpit is, in my view, a sin. He responds, you'll have a hard time proving that to Presbytery, which is fascinating because when you hear how this all unfolds, I wouldn't have had a hard time proving that to Presbytery. Pastor Tyrant goes on and says, My concern is about character and how you deal with things. I responded, I'm glad you brought it up. You have accused me of being contentious. Pastor Tyrant says, I have asked if you are contentious. Yes. I responded, the answer is no. Pastor Dum Dum came into my home and I welcomed him and I made a lighthearted statement. I walked over to the wall right beneath the picture of Abraham Lincoln He was commenting on the picture of Jackson above my desk. And I said, well, you probably are not going to like this picture over here. And I was standing next to it because I was picking up the top of a table and setting it up. And he said, that's good for nothing but throwing darts at. A few moments later, he said of the picture of Thomas Jefferson, quote, well, he's not a Christian. So this man is in my home insulting my property. Who's contentious? Pastor Tyrant says, well, Lee, you brought it up as banter and he decided to play with it. This issue is something that you, you, uh, and I am not sure if I have the time frame right. I went back and looked at some of my documents or his notes. It's inaudible at that moment. But I know this is a subject you like to talk about. And I said, this is not edifying. I'm not talking about this anymore. And you brought it up again at a dinner at your house. That's contentious. You can see how he's trying to lay up to excommunicate me for being contentious. 
So I responded, we were talking about the role of government and its limitations, and the subject came up. Yes, and if you were there, you would notice that whenever I tried to make an argument, uh, an argument, I hate to use that word, whenever I tried to make a point that DM, which is another guy in our church, would interrupt me continuously. And I have witnesses to that. He would continuously interrupt. Pastor Tyrant, why is this subject so important? I responded, my question is, why do people keep defending chattel slavery? It's sick. Pastor Tyrant, uh, I'll say this again. I'm not defending chattel slavery. Pastor Dum Dum hasn't. And I responded, we are talking about DM. Pastor Tyrant says, we don't know what it is. The biblical term is slavery. I responded, Pastor Tyrant, I'm sorry you don't know what it is, but I'm very clear as to what it is. Pastor Tyrant says, what is it? And I said, it's sick. He said, what is it? I said, it's sick. It's man-stealing. That's what it is. It's man-stealing. Pastor Tyrant says, every one of us say they should be executed. So how do you turn around and say, you say that man-stealing is fine. Lee, you're not listening to anybody. You are not hearing. You are stopping your ears against a just defense. You are doing exactly. And I interjected. I said, just defense of what? Pastor Tyrant says, the Bible says man-stealing is sin. I said, right. Pastor Tyrant says, you can't turn around and say that we are in agreement with man-stealing. And I responded, no, you just, the problem is you are not seeing the way slavery was practiced in taking them out of Africa and making them permanent slaves to serve you. It is not man-stealing, it is. He responds, do you know, do you know how every slave became a slave in 1860? I don't have that comprehensive knowledge and I'm not even interested in it. Man-stealers should be executed, and that includes human trafficking. And I don't know how you can tell your wife that I can push the Scripture to defend human trafficking. And if you don't see there is a problem with a heart to speak those kinds of words. And, of course, I kind of already gone over this with the letter because I did put it in a letter. I wanted to make sure that it was, it was very written down and very clear as to what I meant. I said, all right, I know what you're referring to now, and I want to address that. That section where I mentioned watching the human trafficking, and I joked, all you have to do is call it slavery, and the, and the denomination will defend it. That is an expression of emotion. That's all it is. Pastor Tyrant says, that doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't state that if you are in an emotional state, your words don't matter. I said, okay, let me express what I mean by that. One or two weeks before this all fell apart, we were discussing whether or not you were going to address, uh, we'll call him NT, and whether or not we had, and whether or not he should be approached with how he disciplines his children. And we know we have witnesses that say he withholds food from his children as a means of punishment. And friend said to me, Quote, I'd like to take him into the woods and fix him so he can't eat. In other words, have his jaw wired shut. Now, do I think friend really meant that? No, I know friend didn't mean that. But he was having an expression of emotion of how he feels about how NT is doing. And I understood that. I didn't go, friend, you need to be taken to the presbytery and addressed how you express this. I understood what he was doing. And it's the same thing with those people who wrote the song, The Year of Jubilo. Pastor Dum Dum says, this is a horrible how they were wishing the master would be destitute. That is just horrible. It's just an expression of emotion. It was an expression of my frustration that I have to deal with people defending what I consider biblically to be horrible. That's all it was. I'm not saying that you would actually defend human trafficking. It's an expression. And I put it in the letter to express to all of y'all how frustrating I am over this. Pastor Tyrant says, it would have been much wiser to say, this subject frustrates me. 
And I said, I'll accept that. Pastor Tyrant says, you didn't say anything in your letter about slavery on this. And I said, slavery on what? Human trafficking, justifying slavery. That's not in your letter. I responded, yeah, in the show, the woman goes, quote, we got rid of slavery, or at least I thought so. So yes, it's expressed as slavery, human trafficking. Pastor Tyrant, your letter, well, I think that was gravely disrespectful. So your view of my letter is it's all nonsense? I responded, I just told you that I will take it as good advice that you are right. I would have been better to simply say I'm deeply frustrated and left it at that. I accept that. But I want you to understand, I'm not saying, Pastor Tyrant, you would support human trafficking. I'm not saying that. Pastor Tyrant responds, nor would I support human stealing. The Bible is clear in three different ways to lawfully become a slave. I responded, did the black people that were slaves in this country, did they volunteer? The answer is no. Watch this. This is amazing. Pastor Tyrant responds, I don't have that knowledge. Neither do you have that knowledge. Do you know that many of them were captives in war? I responded, what kind of war? Was it a just war? Pastor Tyrant goes, I don't know that enters into this. And I responded, it most certainly does. Because if you go to war with a tribe for the express purpose of capturing them to sell them to Europeans for a profit, Pastor Tyrant interrupts, says, yes, it became that after the slave trade became profitable. That's not an issue. Slavery is alive and well in Africa. Now watch this. I responded, now you were expressing to me some details of history after telling me you don't want to get into the details of history. <laughs> Pastor Tyrant responds, that's over. Okay, you're right. That's where you want to go, though. And I responded, it is where I want to go because you can't escape it. And I don't want to be a part of a denomination that's going to say, well, maybe it's totally expressly, but kind of giving the intimation that, well, chattel slavery as it's practiced by Europeans and Americans was biblical because... Quote, after all, perpetual slavery is biblical. After all, Abraham had many servants, manservants and maidservants. What kind of manservants? Were they, were they voluntary? Were they paying off a debt? Pastor Tyrant responds, I just read in worship a couple of weeks ago that Abraham bought them. And if you bought them, they wouldn't be circumcised. You know of three ways you can become a slave. Conquest and war, you can be bought and I responded, conquest of just war, not unjust war. Let's be specific. Pastor Tyrant, no, no, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can do that. Because Paul doesn't give any qualifications in 1 Timothy to how you become a slave. He deals with the fact that you are a slave, and here are your responsibilities to your superior under God's providence. Even if it's a shotgun wedding, a man and woman are married. I responded, I obviously have a fundamental different view, and I don't think there is a resolution to this. I would, and he said something, and I couldn't make it out. And I said, it's a different, it's a different belief. And Pastor Tyrant goes, oh, it's definitely, it definitely is. It definitely is. When you come to the Bible and you read that those who are under the oath of slavery to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and, and the teaching may not be reviled. Yes, yes, you read this as an apostle writing in a Roman culture. Many of the Gentiles out of the Roman culture are becoming saved. And what Paul really meant, well, if you lawfully become a slave, run away, that's that's you're going to add all of that into the Bible. My real concern, Lee, is how you handle the Bible. And I hesitated for a minute after he said that because he's saying I don't handle the, the Bible. Uh, that was his real concern. So I hesitated for a minute because I knew it wasn't going anywhere. I was like, this is a waste of time. This is going nowhere. 
So the last thing I said was, pray for me, excommunicate me, I'm done. And I got up and walked off. Now, here's the most interesting part of it. And I have it in recording. Pastor Tyrant's response was, okay. It was a very high-pitched, almost jubilant response. Okay. He was after excommunicating me. He was after laying the groundwork so that he could excommunicate me for contentiousness. And of course, that's how they do it. They can't get you on anything, you know, going against the Trinity or the infallibility of the word or something like that. You know, we're having arguments over slavery. And then this is something that's been debated for hundreds of years. You, you can't excommunicate somebody over, hey, I, I just don't think it means that. So he knows he can't excommunicate me on that, but he can excommunicate me on uh, contentiousness. The other problem is, is that this is a presbytery. You can't excommunicate me without a be there being a trial and presbyters all have to vote on it. But for me, you know, when I said excommunicate me, in some ways I was probing him to try it. I'll admit that. I was probing him to try it. Excommunicate me. That was what he was after, and I kind of knew it. Now, I do have one regret at the end of the park meeting when Pastor Tyrant said to me, Lee, my real concern is, is how you handle Scripture. I wish I had responded to him as, well, Pastor Tyrant, my problem is how you handle Scripture. You know, who in the world died and made you the ultimate interpreter of Scripture? What made you infallible? I wished, I really, really wished I had said that to him uh, because he's a tyrant. Uh, he looks down his nose. He is the right interpreter of Scripture, and no one else is. And, and by the way, don't you dare challenge him. And that's what I was doing, and he couldn't stand it. Now, what happens after this is the most fascinating thing about the story. And I'm sorry this has been really, really long, but I want you to see the whole picture. I want to make a record of this, make it f so that people can fully see what happened. I don't want to just give a short story, my personal short story view of this. I wanted to document what exchanged, what was said, what went on. About a few weeks later, I got a letter of excommunication from Pastor Tyrant. Now, of course, he doesn't have the power on his own to excommunicate anyone. He made up the power, which I'll, I'll demonstrate to you here in a little bit. But now remember, I said he was doing a layup with all these meetings and letters uh, of contentiousness that he was saying that I'm, I'm a contentious person. He was doing a layup. He's going to excommunicate me for being contentious and dividing the flock sort of thing. Well, so he sent me a letter of excommunication. In the letter, citing the different... Apparently, he had made notes when I had uh, had a conversation with somebody in the church about slavery, and then the most recent one, the, the conversation got a little heated, and that was the one that was in my home with another gentleman in the, in the church uh, where he never would let me talk. Well, there was one other incident that he cited in the excommunication letter, and he writes, Now I have the report of a young man staying in the friend's household that you confronted him heatedly and with profanity at his place of work demanding of him who told you to hate me in response to his blocking your email messages to him. He further reports that you dishonored his father using profanity again. <laughs> when I got the excommunication letter and I read that, none of that was true. What that was was when we were going through all of this division over the slavery issue, I sent emails to everyone in the church because some of them didn't know, I didn't think some of them knew or had any, any idea that slavery was being defended. 
So I was sending emails to everybody in the church, let them know what's going on. I mean, I, that we're brothers in the same uh, church. You know, we should communicate with each other. We should all be kept in the know of what's going on. You know, let's not have some controversy over here and keep it secret if it involves them. You know, it's like they're, if they're teaching slavery, and once I learned they had published it on Sermon Audio, I didn't want to be associated with that. And I would think there may be some other people in the denomination may not be want to be associated with that, so I let them know through an email. Now, the situation is, is that this young man, it's a young man that came to our church for quite a long time, him and his family. Uh, when I say young man, really, he's just a boy. He's a teenager, a young teenager. He had uh, was I don't remember how this came up, but he was looking for a job. And my my brother owns a machine shop, and I told somehow or another I arranged. I told my brother, "You need to hire that kid. You would love him. He's a good kid. He's a polite young man. He's smart. He would make a young trainee machinist." And my brother hired him on my uh, recommendation. Well, he was one of the people that got some of the emails, and he responded to one of the emails real hateful. Never send me an email again. You know, and I was like, gosh, why are you upset? You know, but you know, you have to, you have to understand he's kind of young, no telling what he's upset at. So well, anyway, I had gone to my brother's machine shop for some purpose. I don't know what, what for, but when I went in, I knew I was going to see this young gentleman, this young man, this boy. And so I tried to lighten it up a little bit. I mean, you know, the, the way he sent me an email was real hateful. So I tried to light it up. And so I walked over to him with a smile on my face, being friendly and saying, hey, young man, I called him by his name, obviously. I'm not going to give you his name. I said, I understand you don't like my emails. And he started cussing me. And, you know, it kind of, I was taken back. It's like, why are you getting that mad over an email? You know, I, you know I'm thinking to myself, I, sometimes I get emails I don't like. I just delete them. You know, he was just very, very hateful to me. So I walked away. I said something. I don't remember, like, I don't remember what I said when I walked away. But I, when I walked away, I thought about it. I was there probably 30 minutes or something, and I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And then I went over there back to him, and I said, young man, I said, and, and, and here's what I did. I, I made a mistake. I do admit that I made a mistake here. I assumed that this man, this young man was mad at me because his dad didn't like me. And I think his dad didn't like me because I was still involved in this church. And this church, uh, his dad had been asked to leave. So this is what I'm assuming. This boy doesn't like me because his dad is influencing them, influencing. So I went over there and wrongly said to him, you know, when your dad sees me, he smiles and shakes my hand, then cusses me behind my back. You know, assume. I, I assumed I was wrong to assume, but I assu Now this boy then started to threaten me. I will kick your, you know, and this is a boy that went to our church. You get your effing ass out of my, you know, that kind of thing. And I said to him, young man, you won't dare threaten me. And I left. That was the episode. Now, somewhere, somehow, somebody told Pastor Tyrant that the story was the other way around, that I threatened him and cursed him. I did no such thing. I was trying to make light of the situation, trying to be friendly with him, and he starts cussing me. Well, the only thing I did, I got the email, which had an attachment of the uh, a letter of uh, excommunication saying that I am contentious. Now, the pastor jumped on this story. When he heard the story, and he obviously got it from a third party, as you'll see in a minute. When he heard it, he just wrote it up as this is further evidence of your contentiousness. And uh, I wrote him back and I said, you definitely should believe everything so-and-so young man told you. That's all I said. <laughs> I left it at that. I'm laughing. I'm like, 
This is pathetic. These people are pathetic. Excommunicating me on something that's not even true. Worse, worse. He didn't even get the information, as you will see, from firsthand knowledge. And it gets worse than that. So a few weeks later, Pastor Tyrant, I call him Tyrant, wrote me back. Quote, Lee, when I wrote you on September 2nd, I incorrectly stated the testimony of the young man regarding your encounter with him at the machine shop. Specifically, in the letter of September 2nd, I did write, quote, Now I have the report of the young man staying in the friend's household that you confronted him heatedly and with profanity at his place of work, demanding of him who told you to hate me. In response to his blocking your email messages to him, he further reports that you dishonored his father using profanity again. In your email of September 4th, you wrote, you should trust every word that comes from the young man. About three weeks ago, I asked the young man more details, and he was clear that you did not use profanity either of him or his father. Hence, what I thought I remembered, now this is a lie, hence what I thought I remember being told and the truth, as the young man affirms, were not in agreement. Therefore, I'm asking you to forgive me for my false testimony to you in the letter of September 2nd. So in other words, Pastor Tyrant got this story from a third hand or second hand. He got it from somebody that wasn't even there, wasn't even present, and he ran with it. See, I told you he's, he wanted to excommunicate me, and when he heard this story, he couldn't wait to use it. Now, if, if, you ever, if you're ever in a trial and there's false evidence brought to a trial against someone, the charges should be dropped. Did this pastor drop his excommunication of me? No. Did he use evidence that he didn't even bother to check its truthfulness? No, he did not. He didn't go to either witness. He didn't ask me about this occurrence. He didn't ask the young man about this occurrence. He got it from a second party. That second party, I'm real sure, was my friend. The young man lived with the friend, and for whatever reason, the friend went and told Pastor Tyrant that I had did these things because the young man told him what happened. Now, whether or not the young man told him what happened was false or if the friend twisted it, I don't know. I have a very strong suspicion now that Pastor Tyrant confronted the young man and he said, no, it didn't happen that way. That indicates to me that my friend is the one that told the story wrong and lied about it, turned it around, lied about me, told things about me that weren't true. I had a Pastor Tyrant take that information, not bothering to verify it with any of the witnesses, and used it in a letter of excommunication. Then when it's discovered that it wasn't true, did he reverse the excommunication? No, he did not. That's why I call him Pastor Tyrant. That's why I call Pastor Dum 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 Dum. That's why I call friend a friend rhetorically. I found out he wasn't a friend at all. Now, when I got the excommunication letter, I, I got it via email, and I responded in email that I would wear it with a badge of honor. Uh, I consider it honorable that uh, I stood up against this foolishness of slavery being uh, biblical, uh, in defense of the South and, and all that nonsense, and being excommunicated over it, to me, was a badge of honor. 
Now, of course, they're going to say, we didn't excommunicate you over that. We excommunicated you over being contentious. Uh, but that was not valid either, simply because I had conversations with people disputing their view of history does not make me contentious. And certainly, citing an incident uh, in my brother's shop with a young man whom I recommended my brother hire uh, certainly was not something I was doing and didn't do. And uh, when, he, when the pastor, Tyrant, realized that that was not legitimate story, that he had gotten his information incorrectly. And, and he did apologize. He asked for my apology, but that didn't change his view of whether or not I should be excommunicated. You remember when I told you that at the end of our park meeting, when I told him, I'm done with this, excommunicate me, he goes, okay. He was real happy about it. That's what he was after the whole time. The whole time was to try to draw up uh, these charges, manufacture really charges of contentiousness and divisiveness in order to get rid of me. So this is why I call him Pastor Tyrant. Now, the other pastor who I've called dum-dum through the whole thing, I want to elaborate a little bit on that. Why have I called him dum-dum? Now, here's what you've got to understand about this whole thing. They're getting their theology on this subject from a single individual called R.L. Dabney. Uh, R.L. Dabney, or Robert Louis Dabney, was the chaplain under Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War. He was a pastor, quote-unquote theologian, and after the Civil War was over, he wrote a very lengthy book on the defense of Virginia and therefore the South. And if you'll take the time to read that, which I have, uh, the first thing you'll notice is that this man is very bitter. Apparently, he's very angry. Deep, he has some deep-seated anger over the defeat of the Confederacy in the Civil War. But this is where they're getting their theology. Now, you need to know something about this, because way back when, when all this was happening, my wife said to me, you know, I, I'm really concerned these people might be racist. And of course, I dismissed it. I was like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't see these people being racist. They just, they just have bad history. Well, I have since modified that view, and I'm going to show you why. After the Civil War, the blacks were freed, and the southern states did everything they could to put black people back in chains. They did not want the social equality of black people with whites. Now, I'm going to read something or a series of things to you out of a, an extraordinary book entitled The Problem of Slavery in Christian America by Joel McDermott. This is one of the best books I've ever read. He writes, Dabney was one of the most outspoken voices in the midst of this debate, taking up the role of rhetorical champion left off by the late Thornwell. Thornwell was another individual who was saying there's no way, basically no way blacks can be equal to whites. Surprised by an overture on racial equality to be submitted to the General Assembly by his own synod, Damney took to the floor almost impromptu with an impassioned opposition, which he recalled as, quote, one of two occasions in which I fully let myself loose, unquote. And a witness recounted how, quote, his voice trembled with emotion, his frame shook, his eyes snapped fire, and his arms flew vigorously in all directions, unquote. Coming in 1867, what was Dabney's great emergency? Among several arguments, he concluded with the crux of the matter, quote, he must be, quote, innocent indeed, who does not see whither all this tends, as it is designed by our oppressors to terminate. It is to amalgamation, unquote. 
It was indeed the greatest evil of which the white supremacists could imagine, race mixing. Dabney immediately followed, quote, Yes, sir, these tyrants know that if they can mix the race of Washington and Lee and Jackson with this base herd, pay attention to how he says that, with this base herd, which they brought from the fens of Africa, if they can taint the blood which hallowed the plains of Manassas with this sordid stream, the adulterous current will never again swell a Virginian's heart with a throb noble enough to make a despot tremble. But they will then have, for all time, a race supple and groveling enough for all the purposes of oppression. Unquote. McDermott writes, From his earliest intervention on the issue, Dabney maintained that there was, quote, an inseparable difference of race made by God and not by man and of character and condition that makes it impossible for a black man to teach and rule white Christians to edification, unquote. Consistently referring to his own black brethren within his own churches as, quote, this unfortunate race. He opposed equality of black ministers because, quote, that race is not trustworthy for such position, unquote. After all, Quote, who that knows the Negro does not know that this is a subservient race that he is made to follow and not to lead, that his temperament, idiosyncrasy, and social relation make him untrustworthy as a depository of power, unquote. Now, you can kind of see that he's pretty much a white supremacist, right? He calls, he refers to them, uh, black people out of Africa, a base herd, but watch, it gets better. Uh, he writes, Dabney finished with this, quote, I would make no black man a member of a white session or presbyter or synod or assembly, nor would I give them any share in the government of our own church, nor any representation in it. Quote, it is confusion, unquote. Joe McDermott writes, those last three words may form the most denigrating insult to the black brethren of any Dabney penned, though it is somewhat veiled to those not paying close attention. It was not just a general scriptural aspersion such as an abomination. That phrase appears only once in the English Bible. It is a quotation from Leviticus 18.23, the prohibition against bestiality. For Dabney's racial equality apparently stood on par with the sin of having sexual relations with animals. Whether the oppression was extreme or more subdued, it was always designed for the same purpose— to put black men and women in their quote-unquote place in the alleged divine order of things. Now, you can see very clearly, and I, you know, if you're interested in the subject, I highly recommend reading uh, uh, Joel McDermott's book, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. But you can see very easily that R.L. Dabney was a white supremacist. And these people in these churches that are defending chattel slavery, they're getting their theology from R.L. Dabney. Providentially, when I was going through this whole issue with my church and with these people who were defending Southern slavery, it is just fascinating that this has come up. And at the same time, Joe McDermott publishes this book. It's quite fascinating. Well, anyway, so they love R.L. Dabney. He is their guru. And, of course, they cling to him as a guru, in my estimation, because he says what they think. All right, now I'm going off of faded memory as to exactly the chronological order of things from this point forward. 
I think I had received the excommunication letter from Pastor Tyrant before I had gotten this phone call. Now, understand that our church, the Pastor Tyrant was leading, was a church plant. It was under another church in this denomination. So everything that happened in our church was reported back to the church that, that we were under. Uh, that church had elders. Our church did not have, did not have elders. Uh, we weren't large enough to set up eldership yet. Uh, so we were, uh, you know, a church plant. Well, all, everything that happens in our church was reported back to the uh, original church, which was in another town. And I didn't know all this, but uh, out of the blue, a few weeks after I got Max's communication letter, at least that's how I remember it, uh, I got a call from that pastor, and he said, uh, Brother Lee, I've, we have reviewed all of the information, all of the communications, emails, excommunications, and so forth uh, over the issue that you are having a trouble with, and brother, I want to let you know we agree with you. Now, when I heard those words, I was terribly surprised, but at the same time, I felt relieved because I felt like I was on an island by myself. I thought the whole denomination felt the way Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum felt, but come to find out that's not the case. So it was a it was a real breath of fresh air to hear this pastor say, we agree with you. And he went on to tell me that they are in negotiation, negotiations with Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum. Uh, regarding the issue uh, and ironing out maybe some differences or some repentance and so forth, stuff like that. Uh, he didn't get into a lot of detail with me as to how that was going or what, what all that was about. And I'm again, I'm still going off of faded memory. Uh, but that was an amazing thing because what happened next after, I want to I say a couple of months of negotiations this whole issue went directly to the whole presbytery of the church. And the presbytery meeting was in another state. Uh, I could have went as a witness. Uh, I basically was too busy with work. And secondly, I didn't want to drive that far out of town. And third, I, I pretty much had decided I was done with this, this denomination uh, because these people were in it. Uh, Pastor Dum Dum and Pastor Tyrant. So I kind of washed my hands of the whole thing. Well, apparently, and I'm going off of what I've heard, is at the Presbytery meeting, Pastor Dum Dum and Pastor Tyrant are reprimanded for what they, how they've handled it and their views on the issue. And not liking that reprimand, Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum broke from this denomination and sought uh, membership in another denomination. That's about the extent of what I know about this. Now, I did hear, I don't remember how I heard, I did hear what denomination these Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum joined. Of course, I was real concerned that, you know, they're, they've divided the, the current denomination that they were in. They've excommunicated a member based on false evidence. So I was a little concerned that maybe the denomination they were entering into may not know all the facts. You know, it's kind of like when um, we were going through all this and I sent emails to virtually everyone in the church or anybody that's associated with the church so they would know what was going on. Uh, same here. It was like, to me, it's like the, the denomination they're entering needs to know what's going on. So I contacted or found them on the web and found the uh, first pastor listed on the website of the Reformed Presbyterian Church 
General Assembly was a man named Kenneth Talbot. So I sent Kenneth Talbot the following email to inform him of Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum joining the RPCGA. I wrote, quote, Please accept my apology if I'm mistaking, but is it not correct that Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum were accepted as pastors with the RPCGA? Kenneth Talbot wrote back, No, you are correct. Who are you? What is your full name? Where do you live? And what credentials do you have in American history? My name is Lee. I'm an excommunicated member of Pastor Tyrant's church. I was excommunicated on false charges unilaterally by Pastor Tyrant. As a Presbyterian, he does not have this power, and as Lord Acton said so profoundly, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. He took a story he had heard third-hand about me and ran with it without verifying with myself or the other person involved. When I admonished him for the false story, he then decided to ask questions and wrote me a letter asking for forgiveness. But he did not retract the excommunication. This is tyranny. And in like manner, his tyranny in this is commensurate with his views of slavery. The power the slaveholder had over his slaves was tyranny, thus making the slaveholder corrupt. What my credentials are in history is of no consequence. The reason is, for the Southern apologist, if I had three doctorates in history, they would dismiss any knowledge of mine as being the result of the, quote, victors writing the history. Who my pastor is and where I'm a member of a church is of no consequence either, as far as I can see, unless you can show me otherwise. My concern in writing you is that you have two men in Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum who preach and defend Southern chattel slavery as being biblical, which, emphatically, is not. Anyone who thinks so is using the Bible to defend the indefensible. Even the Southern Baptist Convention, which was started over slavery, in 1995, formally apologized over its history regarding slavery. The denomination denounced Pastor Dum Dum's teaching on slavery and voted against it being taught. Instead of humbly being under Presbyterian rule and not liking the outcome, Pastor Dum Dum brought charges against Pastor H.J. for instigating me, which is not at all true and which he could bring forth no evidence. The Presbytery dismissed the charges. I sent you a link of Pastor Dum Dum preaching on slavery, and if you listen to it and think there is nothing wrong with it, I feel sorry for you. If you haven't listened to it, please do. His history and his use of the Bible in defense of American chattel slavery is disgusting and wrong. I'm informing you of this matter for fear that you don't know this. If you do know this and you accept it, best of luck to you and the RPCGA, as you are going to need it because you will receive no blessings from heaven. I find it amusing that so many Presbyterians quickly defend the sovereignty of God in history and yet cannot see that God condemned the South and destroyed it for its sin like he did the Israel in its sin, for its sin. There is another similarity to the Confederate States that I think you should and could take into consideration. Abraham Lincoln said about the foolishness of secession, quote, Why may not South Carolina, a year or two hence, arbitrarily secede from a new Southern Confederacy, just as she now claims to secede from the present Union? Her people, and indeed all secession people, are now being educated in the precise temper of doing this. Is there such perfect identity of interest among the states to compose a Southern Union as to produce harmony only and prevent renewed secession? Will South Carolina be found lacking in either the restlessness or the ingenuity to pick a quarrel with Kentucky? Unquote. 
Allow me to rewrite this to illustrate what I'm trying to convey. Quote, why may not Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum, a year or two hence, arbitrarily secede from the RPCGA, just as they now claim to secede from the, from the current denomination? Is there such perfect identity of interest among these other churches within the RPCGA as to produce harmony only and prevent renewed secession? Will Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum be found lacking in their restlessness or in or the ingenuity to pick a quarrel with another church? Unquote. Hopefully you can see the common sense of this illustration. Pastor Tyrant has always put high value in covenants for all things except himself. He in no way put high value in the covenant he was in with the current denomination. So what makes you think he or Pastor Dum Dum will with the RPCGA? Although this may work out fine if you and the others of the RPCGA agree with Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum on slavery. If this is the case, disregard my email here as a waste of your time. Unless you respond to this email, you will not hear another word from me. He wrote back, Thank you for responding. I pastor an interracial church, and we examine pastors Dum Dum and Pastor Tyrant on these very issues. You are right, it is not of your interest in this matter. You have no training in American history and only endorse a non-scholarly work. You use improper and false terminology and most likely never read Amman historians on this matter, nor its theologians. Now, I have no clue what Amman historians are, but that's your problem, not mine. Thus, thank you, but no thanks. We will take your word. You are done with this matter. As a professed Christian, I will say it's time you moved on, as we shall do the same. May you find peace and grace in your life. And then I wrote him back, and I said, please explain or I'm sorry, please, can you help me understand what are Armand historians? Pastor Kenneth Talbot wrote back, lots of laughs. So in other words, he wasn't going to explain it. So I wrote him back, only a prig wholly lost in his own conceit would think American slavery is anything other than a violation of do unto others. You are a stinking idiot like Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum. Whatever you do, don't dare sing Amazing Grace because the person who wrote it repented of his own involvement in slavery and worked to end it in England. Only total hypocrites would sing that song and believe chattel slavery was biblical, although I hope you do sing it one day in your own repentance for your current view. Let me guess, I got that history wrong too, question mark. Pastor Kenneth Talbot wrote back, you just cannot shut up, even you said you would, telling story about you. I wrote back, Nope, I said I was done telling you about those two glaring fools, Pastor Tyrant and Pastor Dum Dum. If you think I will shut up about the stinking subject of fools endorsing Southernism, you might as well ask me to deny, to deny Christ. Pride knows no shame and no hypocrisy too transparent. I understand you are on the board of American Vision. Not for long. I once accused Pastor Tyrant of either making an idol of the South or getting his history from those who've made an idol of the South. I take that back. He, Pastor Dum Dum, and yourself are full-fledged idolaters. There will be a multitude of Christian fools in heaven only to find out their pastors didn't make it. The three longest professions to mankind all began with the letter P, prostitute, politician, and preacher. I hate to lump the prostitute in with the other two because at least she gives her clients something for their money. 
How many go to heaven? No one knows, but hell will be full of preachers and politicians. I smile with glee because your little dwindling church will dwindle more with the addition of the two new pride field idolaters. Excommunicating someone unilaterally is popish, not Presbyterian. Pastor Talbot wrote back, You were and are excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ. You do not know what you are even talking about. Do not contact me again, Dr. Kenneth Talbot. Now notice what he says. I was excommunicated, so, you know, it is final. I mean, it is, it is, uh, these people act like they have the ultimate authority to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. This is popery. This is all, you know, irregardless, uh, we're Presbyterians, but your, your pastor doesn't act like a Presbyterian. He acted like a pope. He excommunicated me on false information. I read all that to him, and he still says you were and are an excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> what's wrong with these people? <laughs> I mean, seriously, what's wrong with these people? Unfortunately, their little church, their little denomination is going to dwindle to nothing. Uh, there will be infighting because you have pride-filled idiots uh, leading them. Those pride-filled tyrants, uh, sort of like Mussolini and Hitler. You know, they made a pact together, but then they'll just end up fighting with each other. Uh, you guys have a this church here has a pact, but they'll just fight with each other. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous. These people are so stupid, it's not even funny. Well, anyway, this was the whole story of my excommunication over slavery. It's the complete story that I know of the story. There are pieces that I weren't a part of. Obviously, I was not part of the details of the Presbyterian meeting where Pastor Dum Dum and Pastor Tyrant were reprimanded. But anyway, there you are. I hope you found it interesting. There are dumb dumb pastors and tyrant pastors everywhere uh, the reason i told the story is i want a complete record of what happened and i want this to be useful for people that are dealing with churches uh, if you run across somebody that or a church or a leader or whatever that seems to be very favorable favorable to everything southern and the confederacy uh, your antenna should go up. They're probably getting their theology from that stinking, rotten, filthy, white supremacist Robert Louis Dabney. This has been Lee Carter with Christian Constitution, the most shocking podcast on the internet. What's great about this is I'm not paid. I can say what I want. We live in a country where I have free speech, and I told you the truth. Uh, it's easy for me to tell the truth because I'm not getting, getting paid. I don't make my living this way. I make a fine living other ways. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening.